Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I did want to, uh, before I leave, because this this topic comes up frequently on the program, I think a lot of non-white people get confused about that soothing lotion uh, and, you know, being able to... uh, get in the bed with a white woman and thinking that, you know, we don't have racism anymore uh, because we can have sex with white people. And I definitely think that is very confused thinking. Um, I noticed a trend in this book uh, frequently when sexual intercourse with white women is presented, it accompanies boxing. Uh, It happens quite a bit. And I I just wanted to see, uh, you know, what you, what you think about this association because when uh, he and Sybil uh, Sybil is another white woman later in the book um, where, you know, same thing. They're supposed to engage in sexual intercourse. And she, I mean, really interesting passage. I read some of that last time, so I don't want to repeat myself, but uh, wow. Um, at any rate, uh, Sybil, she is talking about uh, Joe Lewis. And Joe Lewis and Paul Robeson, they are mentioned uh, more than once uh, in this book. They get referenced. And it's interesting for a lot of reasons. I think it's uh, anytime boxing comes up in this book, I assume he's, you know, purposely drawing attention back to the battle royal. Um, I think that's I I suspect that's got to be one. Uh, Then with Paul Robeson, uh, it got really interesting because when I when I heard Paul Robeson's name, uh, I thought, okay, this is someone who, you know, fought against racism, white supremacy uh, explicitly was, you know, recognized around the world for working against racism. Uh, and then the next thing I thought was, oh, Paul Robeson uh, also did uh, Othello. Um, and then the next thing I thought was, oh, wow, Paul Robeson also played Jack Johnson. And I had to dig a little bit, but he was in the play Black Boy, 1926. Uh, and the play, he played uh, Brutus Jones. And this character is loosely based on Jack Johnson. So uh, that was another cowbell. And and we're back to the boxing ring. Um and I just thought, wow, this pattern to come up so frequently, um, even later in the book, uh, Joe Lewis is mentioned, and it says Joe Lewis, uh, when Joe Lewis beat Jim Jeffries, Joe Lewis never fought Jim Jeffries. It was Jack Johnson that fought Jim, uh, Jim Jeffries and beat him. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's a whole other program to get on Jack Johnson. But I was just curious as to why this continued association, I mean, Jack Johnson, boxing, white women, why this continued association uh, in the book? Why do you think that is? 
Well, I think it's a it's a metaphor for the fight that Ellison um, sees African American men particularly involved in. Um, so, in in many cases, uh, before he gives his first speech for the Brotherhood, he sees a photograph of a boxer that has been beaten blind in the ring. So, oftentimes, it's not just that they that that he associates um, women or the protagonist with boxing, but more so the damage that results from a failure to understand the true consequences of each experience the protagonist finds himself involved in. So, he is metaphorically beat up. Right by his failure to discern the truth of these matters, um, and I feel to, to to be honest and to maybe sort of um, maybe rustle things up here. When you look at the the drafts, the manuscript drafts, this novel was originally intended to be over 800 pages. If any of you ever want to go to the Library of Congress, you can actually see the typewritten pages, Ellison scribbling out notes. Um, you have access to this, I and mean, you have to register, but you can see these these pages. One scene that is taken out um, that is not in the published text, but I think might shine a light on the relationships between black men and white women in this text. Uh, Ellison initially imagined Todd Clifton, who was another black man, um, who was a member of the Brotherhood, uh, and is a eventually leaves the organization. But he, he, he originally imagined that he would be married to a white woman, that this was a major, this was a part of the text, that this character, Todd Clifton, was married to a white woman. And he explains to Invisible Man that the reason he leaves the organization is because he felt the organization was using his marriage as a symbol, and he didn't want it to be a symbol. He wanted them to just be married like two ordinary people. Um, but that this political organization wouldn't allow them to just be a married couple. And I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to deal with, um, as well as certain parts of Ellison's personal life. You know, he was someone who had interactions um, with white women, many of his friends, Richard Wright's married to a white woman. So I just want to make sure that we're understanding the larger context for how Ellison um, thinks about African-American men related to white women, because I'm not sure if he has a, a problem with it at its very heart. He himself, um, you know, had a, a, an affair uh, with a white woman. He's documented in um, Arnold Rumpersad's biography um, that came out in 2007 on Ralph Ellison. Um, but what he does have a problem with, and I think this is what you were getting at, Gus, earlier, is that when black men try to have sexual relationships with white women for purely symbolic reasons. They think they're accomplishing something that they're not. But I don't know if we could go so far as to say that Ellison saw all relationships, all interracial uh, relationships as problematic based on his own personal biography um, and on excise materials from this, from this novel. Um, it's been something difficult uh, for me to get my, my arms around and learning more about um, Ellison, but I think it's difficult to sort of um, get around. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, June 22nd, 2018. So I have been told this is our eighth study session 
on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Gusty Renegade's all-time favorite. We are picking up on Chapter 15. The audio you heard at the beginning of the broadcast uh, that was the lovely Lena Hill, professor, uh, out in Iowa. She was a guest on The Cows way back in 2011. Uh, we dedicated the program to discussing Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison. She's done tons of scholarship uh, on Mr. Ellison and writing biographies uh, both on he uh, and just many different aspects of Invisible Man uh, and how racism, white supremacy is depicted in the text uh, and adding context uh, to Ellison's work. Uh, phenomenal. You can go back and check out her visit to the cows. Uh, that segment right there uh, discussing our all-time favorite area of people activity, Area 8, uh, which is a huge aspect of this book. I, I know we've talked about it uh, with the Battle Royal and some of the different white women that the main character has met, and that's going to be a continuing uh, theme throughout the text, but I thought that was... Uh, interesting segment from uh, Professor Hill's visit, applicable to some of what we'll hear this week, some of what we've heard or a lot of what we've already heard. Uh, with that, we will go ahead and get started. Uh, folks recall last week we ended uh, the protagonist. Uh, he just, I guess, officially getting more information about the Brotherhood uh, and he's going to be working for them. They asked, they told him last week that he would have to leave uh, Mary's and ditch his family or what have you as he moves through the ranks working with the Brotherhood. So that's what we are picking up that uh, picking up at this week. Chapter 15. Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Then I was awake and not awake sitting bolt upright in bed and trying to peer through the sick gray light as, as I sought the meaning of the brash nerve-jangling sound. Pushing the blanket aside, I clasped my hands to my ears. Someone was pounding the steam line, and I stared helplessly for what seemed minutes. My ears throbbed, my side began itching violently, and I tore open my pajamas to scratch, and suddenly the Pain seemed to leap from my ears to my side, and I saw gray marks appearing where the old skin was flaking away beneath my digging nails. And as I watched, I saw thin lines of blood well up in the scratches, bringing pain and, and joining time and place again, and I thought the room has lost its heat on my last day at Mary's, and suddenly I was sick at heart. The clock its alarm lost in the larger sound, said 7.30, and I got out of bed. I'd have to hurry. There was shopping to do before I called Brother Jack for my instruction, and I had to get the money to marry. Why didn't they stop that noise? I reached for my shoes, flinching as the knocking seemed to sound an inch above my head. Why don't they stop, I thought. And why do I feel so let down? The bourbon? My nerves going bad? Suddenly, I was across the room in a bound, pounding the pipe furiously with my shoe heels. Stop it, you ignorant fool! My head was splitting. Beside myself, I struck pieces of silver from the pipe, exposing the black and rusted iron. He was using a piece of metal now, his blows ringing with a ragged edge. If only I knew who it was, I thought, looking for something heavy with which to strike back. If only I knew. 
Then, near the door, I saw something which I'd never noticed there before, the cast-iron figure of a very black, red-lipped, and wide-mouthed negro whose white eyes stared up at me from the floor, his face an enormous grin, his single large black hand held palm up before his chest. It was a bank, a piece of early Americana, the kind of bank which, if a coin is placed in the hand and a lever pressed upon the back, will raise its arm and flip the coin into the grinning mouth. For a second, I stopped, feeling hate charging within me, then dashed over and grabbed it, suddenly as enraged by the tolerance or lack of discrimination or whatever that allowed Mary to keep such a self-mocking image around as by the knocking. In my hand, its expression seemed more of a strangulation than a grin. It was choking, filled to the throat with coins. How the hell did it get here, I wondered, dashing over and striking the pipe a blow with the kinky iron head. Shut up, I screamed, which seemed only to enrage the hidden knocker. The din was deafening. Tenants up and down the entire line of apartments joined in. I hammered back with the iron naps, seeing the silver fly striking like driven sand against my face. The pipe fairly hummed with the blows. Windows were going up. Voices yelled obscenities down the air shaft. Who started all this, I wondered? Who's responsible? Why don't you act like responsible people living in the 20th century, I yelled, aiming a blow at the pipe. Get rid of your cotton patch ways. Act civilized! Then came a crash of sound, and I felt the iron head crumble and fly apart in my hand. Coins flew over the room like crickets ringing, rattling against the floor, rolling. I stopped dead. Just listen to him! Just listen to him! Mary called from the hall. Enough noise to wake the dead. They know when the heat don't come up that the super's drunk or done walked off the job looking for his woman or something. Why don't folks act according to what they know? She was at my door now, knocking, stroke for stroke, with the blows landing on the pipe, calling, Son, ain't some of that knocking coming from in there? I turned from side to side in indecision, looking at the pieces of broken head, the small coins of all denominations that were scattered about. You hear me, boy? she called. Uh, what is it? I called, dropping to the floor and reaching frantically for the broken pieces, thinking, If she opens the door, I'm lost. I said, is any of that racket coming from in there? Uh, yes, it is, Mary, I called, but, but I'm all right. I'm, I'm, I'm already awake. I saw the knob move and froze, hearing, Sounded to me like a heap of it was coming from in there. You got your clothes on? Uh, no, I cried. I, I, I'm just dressing. I'll, I'll have them on in a minute. Come on out to the kitchen, she said. It's warm out there, and there's some hot water on the stove to wash your face in, and some coffee. Lord, just listen at the racket. I stood as though frozen until she moved away from the door. I'd have to hurry. I kneeled, picking up a piece of the bank, a part of the red-shirted chest reading the legend, Feed Me, in a curve of white iron letters, like the team name on an athlete's shirt. The figure had gone to pieces like a grenade, scattering jagged fragments of painted iron among the coins. I looked at my hand. A small trickle of blood showed. I wiped it away, thinking, 
I'll have to hide this mess. I can't take her this and the news that I'm moving at the same time. Taking a newspaper from the chair, I folded it stiffly and swept the coins and broken metal into a pile. Where would I hide it, I wondered, looking with profound distaste at the iron kinks, the dull red of a piece of grinning lip. Why, I thought with anguish, would Mary have something like this around anyway? Just why? I looked under the bed. It was dustless there. No place to hide anything. She was too good a housekeeper. Besides, what of the coins? Hell! Maybe the thing was left by the former rumor. Ah, anyway, whosoever it was, it had to be hidden. There was the closet, but she'd find it there, too. After I was gone a few days, she'd clean up my things, and there it'd be. The knocking had gone beyond mere protest over heedlessness now. It had fallen into a ragged rumba rhythm. Knock, 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 vibrating the very floor. Just a few minutes more, you bastards, I said out loud, and I'll be gone. No respect for the individual. Why don't you think about those who might wish to sleep? What if, what if someone is near a nervous breakdown? But there was still the package. There was nothing to do but get rid of it along the way downtown. Making a tight bundle, I placed it in my overcoat pocket. I'd simply have to give Mary enough money to cover the coins. I'd give her as much as I could spare, half of what I had if necessary. That should make up for some of it. She should appreciate that. And now I realized with a feeling of dread that I had to meet her face to face. There was no way out. Why can't I just tell her that I'm leaving and pay her and go off? She was a landlady. I was a tenant. Ugh, no. There was more to it, and I wasn't hard enough, scientific enough even to tell her that I was leaving. I'll tell her I have a job, anything. But it has to be now. She was sitting at the table drinking coffee when I went in the kettle hissing away on the stove, sending up jets of steam. Gee, but you slow this morning, she said. Take some of that water in the kettle and go wash your face. Though sleepy as you look, maybe you ought to just use cold water. This'll do, I said flatly, feeling the steam drifting upon my face, growing swiftly damp and cold. The clock above the stove was slower than mine. In the bathroom, I put in the plug and poured some of the hot water and cooled it from the spigot. I kept the tear-warm water upon my face a long time, then dried and returned to the kitchen. Run it full again, she said when I returned. How you feel? So-so, I said. She sat with her elbows upon the enameled tabletop, her cup held in both hands, one work-worn little finger delicately curved. I went to the sink and turned the spigot, feeling the cold rush of water upon my hand, thinking of what I had to do. That's enough there, boy, Mary said, startling me. Wake up! <laughs> I guess I'm not all here, I said. My mind was wandering. Well, call her back and, and come get you some coffee. Soon as I've had mine, I'll see what kind of breakfast I can whip together. I guess after last night, you can eat this morning. You didn't come back for supper. I'm sorry, I said. Coffee will be enough for me. Boy, you better start eating again, she warned, pouring me a full cup of coffee. I took the cup and sipped it, black. It was bitter. 
She glanced from me to the sugar bowl and back again, but remained silent, then swirled her cup, looking into it. Guess I've got to get some better filters, she mused. These I got just lets through the grounds along with the coffee, the good with the bad. <laughs> I don't know, though. Even with the best filters, you have to find a ground or two at the bottom of the old cup. I blew upon the steaming liquid, avoiding Mary's eyes. The knocking was becoming unbearable again. I'd have to get away. I looked at the hot metallic surface of the coffee, noticing an oily, opalescent swirl. Look, Mary, I said, plunging in. I want to talk to you about something. Now see here, boy, she said gruffly. I don't want you worrying me about your rent this morning. I'm not worried, because when you get it, I know you'll pay me. Meanwhile, you forget it. Nobody in this house is going to starve. You having any luck lining up a job? No. I mean, not exactly, I stammered, seizing the opportunity. But I've, I've got an appointment to see about one this morning. Her face brightened. Oh, that's fine. You'll get something yet. I know it. But about my debt, I began again. Don't worry about it. How about some hotcakes? She asked, rising and going to look into the cabinet. They'll stick with you in this cold weather. I won't have time, I said, but I've got something for you. What's that? She said, her voice coming muffled as she peered inside the cabinet. Here, I said hurriedly, reaching into my pocket for the money. What? Let me see if I've got some syrup. But look, I said eagerly, removing a hundred-dollar bill. Must be on a higher shelf, she said. Her back still turned. I sighed as she dragged a stepladder from beside the cabinet and mounted it, holding on to the doors and peering upon an upper shelf. I'd never get it said. But I'm trying to give you something, I said. Why don't you quit bothering me, boy? You trying to give me what? She said, looking over her shoulder. I held up the bill. This, I said. She craned her head around. Boy, what you got there? It's money. Money? Good God, boy, she said, almost losing her balance as she turned completely around. Where'd you get all that much money? You've been playing the numbers. That's it. My number came up, I said thankfully, thinking, what'll I say if she asks me what the number was? I didn't know. I never played. But how come you didn't tell me? I'd have at least put a, a nickel on it. I didn't think it would do anything, I said. Well, I declare. And I bet it was your first time, too. It was. See there? I know you was a lucky one. Here I've been playing for years, and the first drop of the bucket you hits for that kind of money. I'm so glad for you, son. I really am. But I don't want your money. Wait till you get a job. But um, I'm not giving you all of it, I said hastily. This is, this is just on account. But that's a hundred-dollar bill. I take that and try to change it, and the white folks will want to know my whole life's history, she snorted. They want to know where I was born, where I work, where I've been for the last six months. And when I tell them, they still gonna think I stole it. A ain't you got nothing smaller? Uh, that's, that's the smallest. Take it, I pleaded. I I'll have enough left. She looked at me shrewdly. You show it's the truth, I said. Well, I declare... Let me get down from up here before I fall and break my neck, son, she said, coming down off the ladder. I sure do appreciate it. But I tell you, I'm just 
gonna keep part of it for myself, and the rest I'm going to save for you. You get hard up, you just come to Mary. I think I'll be all right now, I said, watching her fold the money carefully, placing it in the leather bag that always hung on the back of her chair. I'm really glad, because now I can take care of that bill they've been bothering me about. It'll do me so much good to go in there and plop down some money and tell them folks to quit bothering me. <laughs> Son, I believe your luck done changed. Do you dream that number? I glanced at her eager face. Yes, I said, but um, it was a, it was a mixed-up dream. What was the figure? Jesus, what's this? she cried, getting up and pointing at the linoleum near the steam line. I saw a small drove of roaches trooping frantically down the steam line from the floor above, plummeting to the floor as the vibration of the pipe shook them off. Get the broom, Mary yelled. Out of the closet, there! Stepping around the chair, I snatched the broom and joined her, splattering and scattering roaches with both broom and feet, hearing the pop and snap as I brought the pressure down upon them vehemently. They're filthy, stinking things, Mary cried. Get that one under the table. Yon he goes. Don't let him get away, the nasty rascal. I swung the broom, battering and sweeping the squashed insects into piles. Breathing excitedly, Mary got the dustpan and handed it to me. Some folks just live in filth, she said disgustedly. Just let a little knocking start and here it comes, crawling out. All you have to do is shake things up a bit. I looked at the damp spots on the linoleum, then shakily replaced the pan and broom and started out of the room. Aren't you going to eat no breakfast, she said. Soon as I wipe up this mess, I'm going to start. I don't have time, I said, my hand on the knob. My appointment is early, and, and I have a few things to do beforehand. Then you better stop and have you something hot soon as you can. Don't do to go around in this cold weather without something in your belly. And don't think you're going to start eating out just because you've got some money. I don't. I'll take care of it, I said to her back as she washed her hands. Well, good luck, son, she called. You really give me a pleasant surprise this morning. And if that's a lie, I hope something big will bite me. She laughed gaily, and I went down the hall to my room and closed the door. Pulling on my overcoat, I got down my prized briefcase from the closet. It was still as new as the night of the battle royal, and sagged now as I placed the smashed bank and coins inside and locked the flap. Then I closed the closet door and left. The knocking didn't bother me so much now. Mary was singing something sad and serene as I went down the hall, and still singing as I opened the door and stepped into the outside hall. Then I remembered and there beneath the dim hall light, I took the faintly perfumed paper from my wallet and carefully unfolded it. A tremor passed over me. The hall was cold. Then it was gone, and I squinted and took a long, hard look at my new brotherhood name. The night's snowfall was already being churned to muck by the passing cars, and it was warmer. Joining the pedestrians along the walk, I could feel the briefcase swinging against my leg from the weight of the package, and I determined to get rid of the coins and broken iron at the first ash can. I needed nothing like this to remind me of my last morning at Mary's. I made for a row of crushed garbage cans lined before a row of old private houses, coming alongside and tossing the package casually into one of them and moving on.
only to hear a door open behind me and a voice ring out, Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. Just come right back here and get it. Turning, I saw a little woman standing on the stoop with a green coat covering her head and shoulders, its sleeves hanging limp like extra atrophied arms. I mean you, she called. Come on back and get your trash. And don't ever put your trash in my can again. She was a short, yellow woman with a pince-nez on a chain, her hair pinned up in knots. We keep our place clean and respectable, and we don't want you field niggas coming up from the South and ruining things, she shouted with blazing hate. People were stopping to look. A super from a building down the block came out and stood in the middle of the walk, pounding his fist against his palm with a dry, smacking sound. I hesitated, embarrassed and annoyed. Was this woman crazy? I mean it. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. You just take it right out. Rosalie, she called to someone inside the house. Call the police, Rosalie. I can't afford that, I thought, and walked back to the can. What does it matter, miss, I called up to her. When the collectors come, garbage is garbage. I just didn't want to throw it into the street. I didn't know that some kinds of garbage were better than others. Never mind your impertinence, she said. I'm sick and tired of having you southern Negroes mess up things for the rest of us. All right, I said, I'll get it out. And reached into the half-filled can, feeling for the package, as the fumes of rotting swill entered my nostrils. It felt unhealthy to my hand, and the heavy package had sunk far down. Cursing, I pushed back my sleeve with my clean hand and probed until I found it. Then I wiped off my arm with a handkerchief and started away, aware of the people who paused to grin at me. It serves you right, the little woman called from the stoop. And I turned and started upward. That's enough out of you, you piece of yellow gone to waste, unless you still want to call the police. My voice had taken on a new shrill pitch. I've done what you wanted me to do, another word, and I'll do what I want to do. She looked at me with widening eyes. I believe you would, she said, opening the door. I believe you would. I not only would, I'd love it, I said. I can see that you are no gentleman, she called, slamming the door. At the next row of cans, I wiped off my wrist and hands with a piece of newspaper, then wrapped the rest around the package. Next time, I'd throw it into the street. Two blocks further along, my anger had ebbed, but I felt strangely lonely. Even the people who stood around me at the intersection seemed isolated, each lost in his own thoughts. And now, just as the lights changed, I let the package fall into the trampled snow and hurried across, thinking, there, it's done. I had covered two blocks when someone called behind me. Say, buddy! Hey there, you mister! Wait a second, and I could hear the hurried crunching of the footsteps upon the snow. Then he was beside me, a squat man in worn clothes, the strands of his breath showing white in the cold as he smiled at me, panting. You was moving so fast I thought I wasn't going to be able to stop you, he said. Didn't you lose something back there a piece? Oh, hell, a friend in need, I thought, deciding to deny it. Lose something? I said. Why no? You sure? He said, frowning. Yes, 
I said, seeing his forehead wrinkled with uncertainty, a hot charge of fear leaping to his eyes as he searched my face. But I seen you. Say, buddy, he said, looking swiftly back up the street, what you trying to do? Do? What do you mean? I mean, talking about you didn't lose nothing. You working a con game or something? He backed away, looking hurriedly at the pedestrians back up the street from where he'd come. What on earth are you talking about now, I said. I tell you, I didn't lose anything. Man, don't tell me. I seen you. What the hell you mean? He said furtively, removing the package from his pocket. This here feels like money or a gun or something. And I know damn well I seen you drop it. Oh, that, I said. That isn't anything. I thought you... That's right. Oh, so you remembers now, don't you? I think I'm doing you a favor and you play me for a fool. You some kind of confidence man or dope peddler or something? You trying to work one of those pigeon drops on me? Pigeon drop, I said. You're making a mistake. Mistake hell, take this damn stuff, he said, thrusting the package in my hands as though it were a bomb with a lighted fuse. I got a family, man. I try to do you a favor and here you trying to get me into trouble. You running from a, a detective or somebody? Wait a minute, I said. You're letting your imagination run away. This is nothing but garbage. Don't try to hand me that simple-minded crap, he wheezed. I know what kind of garbage it is. You young New York Negroes is a blip. I swear you is. I hope they catch you and put your ass under the jail. He shot away as though I had smallpox. I looked at the package. He thinks it's a gun, or stolen goods, I thought, watching him go. A few steps farther along, I was about to toss it boldly into the street when, upon looking back, I saw him joined by another man now, gesturing toward me indignantly. I hurried away. Give him time, and the fool will call a policeman. I dropped the package back into the briefcase. I'd wait until I got downtown. On the subway, people around me were reading their morning papers, pressing forward their unpleasant faces. I rode with my eyes shut, trying to make my mind blank to thoughts of Mary. Then turning, I saw the item, violent protest over Harlem eviction, just as the man lowered his paper and moved out of the breaking doors. I could hardly wait until I reached 42nd Street where I found the story carried on the front page of a tabloid, and I read it eagerly. I was referred to only as an unknown rabble-rouser who had disappeared in the excitement, but that it referred to me was unmistakable. It had lasted for two hours, the crowd refusing to vacate the premises. I entered the clothing store with a new sense of self-importance. I selected a more expensive suit than I'd intended, and while it was being altered, I picked up a hat, shirts, shoes, underwear, and socks, then hurried to call Brother Jack, who snapped his orders like a general. I was to go to a number on the Upper East Side, where I'd find a room, and I was to read over some of the Brotherhood's literature, which had been left there for me, with the idea of my making a speech at a Harlem rally to be held that evening. The address was that of an undistinguished building in a mixed Spanish-Irish neighborhood, and there were boys throwing snowballs across the street when I rang the super's bell. The door was opened by a small, pleasant-faced woman who smiled. 
Good morning, brother, she said. The apartment is all ready for you. He said you'd come about this time, and I've just this minute come down. My, just look at that snow. I followed her up the three flights of stairs, wondering what on earth I'd do with a whole apartment. This is it, she said, removing a chain of keys from her pocket and opening a door at the front of the hall. I went into a small, comfortably furnished room that was bright with the winter sun. This is the living room, she said proudly, and over here is your bedroom. It was much larger than I needed, with a chest of drawers, two upholstered chairs, two closets, a bookshelf, and a desk on which was stacked the literature to which he'd referred. A bathroom lay off the bedroom, and there was a small kitchen. I hope you like it, brother, she said as she left. If there's anything you need, please ring my bell. The apartment was clean and neat, and I liked it, especially the bathroom with its tub and shower. And as quickly as I could, I drew a bath and soaked myself. Then, feeling clean and exhilarated, I went out to puzzle over the Brotherhood books and pamphlets. My briefcase with the broken image lay on the table. I would get rid of the package later. Right now, I had to think about tonight's rally. At 7.30, Brother Jack and some of the others picked me up, and we shot up to Harlem in a taxi. As before, no one spoke a word. There was only the sound made by a man in the corner who drew noisily on a pipeful of rum-flavored tobacco, causing it to glow on and off, a red disc in the dark. I rode with mounting nervousness. The taxi seemed unnaturally warm. We got out in a side street and went down a narrow alley in the dark to the rear of the huge barn-like building. Other members had already arrived. Ah, here we are. Brother Jack said, leading the way through a dark rear door to a dressing room lighted by naked, low-hanging bulbs, a small room with wooden benches and a row of steel lockers with a network of names scratched on the doors. It had a football locker smell of ancient sweat, iodine, blood, and rubbing alcohol, and I felt a welling up of memories. We remain here until the building fills, Brother Jack said. Then we make our appearances, just at the height of their impatience. He gave me a grin. Meanwhile, you think about what you'll say. Did you look over the material? All day, I said. Good. I suggest, however, that you listen carefully to the rest of us. We'll all precede you so that you can get the pointers for your remarks. You'll be last. I nodded seeing him take two of the other men by the arm and retreat to a corner. I was alone. The others were studying their notes, talking. I went across the room to a torn photograph tacked to the faded wall. It was a shot, in fighting stance, of a former prizefight champion, a popular fighter who had lost his sight in the ring. It must have been right here in this arena, I thought. That had been years ago. The photograph was that of a man so dark and battered that he might have been any nationality, big and loose-muscled. He looked like a good man. 
I remembered my father's story of how he had been beaten blind in a crooked fight, of the scandal that had been suppressed and how the fighter had died in a home for the blind. Who would have thought I'd ever come here? <sighs> how things were twisted around. I felt strangely sad and went and slouched on a bench. The others talked on, their voices low. I watched them with a sudden resentment. Why did I have to come last? What if they bored the audience to death before I came on? I'd probably be shouted down before I could get started. Ah, but perhaps not, I thought, jabbing my suspicions away. Perhaps I could make an effect through the sheer contrast between my approach and theirs. Maybe that was the strategy. Anyway, I had to trust them. I had to. Still a nervousness clung to me. I felt out of place. From beyond the door, I could hear a distant scrape of chairs, a murmur of voices. Little worries whirled up within me. That I might forget my new name. That I might be recognized from the audience. I bent forward, suddenly conscious of my legs in my new blue trousers. But how do you know they're your legs? What's your name? I thought, making a sad joke with myself. It was absurd. But it relieved my nervousness. For it was as though I were looking at my own legs for the first time. Independent objects that could of their own volition lead me to safety or danger. I stared at the dusty floor. Then it was as though I stood simultaneously at opposite ends of a tunnel. I seemed to view myself from the distance of the campus while yet sitting there on a bench in the old arena, dressed in a new blue suit, sitting across the room from a group of intense men who talked among themselves in hushed, edgy voices, while yet in the distance I could hear the clatter of chairs, more voices, a cough. I seemed aware of it all from a point deep within me. Yet there was a disturbing vagueness about what I saw, a disturbing unformed quality, as when you see yourself in a photo exposed during adolescence, the expression empty, the grin without character, the ears too big, the pimples, courage bumps, too many and, and too well-defined. This was a, a new phase, I realized, a new beginning, and I would have to take that part of myself that looked on with remote eyes and keep it always at the distance of the campus, the hospital machine, the battle royal, all now far behind. Perhaps the part of me that observed listlessly but saw all, missing nothing, was still the malicious, arguing part, the dissenting voice, my grandfather part, the cynical, disbelieving part the traitor self that always threatened internal discord. Whatever it was, I knew that I'd have to keep it pressed down. I had to. For if I were successful tonight, I'd be on the road to something big. No more flying apart at the seams. No more remembering forgotten pains. No, I thought, shifting my body. They're the same legs on which I've come so far from home. And yet... They were somehow new. The new suit imparted 
a newness to me. It was the clothes and the new name and the circumstances. It was a newness too subtle to put into thought. But there it was. I was becoming someone else. I sensed vaguely and with a flash of panic that the moment I walked out upon the platform and opened my mouth, I'd be someone else. Not just a, a nobody with a manufactured name which might have belonged to anyone or to no one, but another personality. Few people knew me now, but after tonight, how was it perhaps simply to be known, to be looked upon by so many people, to be the focal point of so many concentrating eyes, perhaps this was enough to make one different, enough to transform one into something else, someone else. Just as by becoming an increasingly larger boy, one became one day a man, a man with a, a deep voice, although my voice had been deep since I was twelve. But what if someone from the campus wandered into the audience, or someone from Mary's, e even Mary herself? No, it wouldn't change it, I heard myself say softly. That's all past. My name was different. I was under orders. Even if I met Mary on the street, I'd have to pass her by unrecognized. A depressing thought. And I got up abruptly and went out of the dressing room and into the alley. Without my overcoat, it was cold. A feeble light burned above the entrance, sparkling the snow. I crossed the alley to the dark side, stopping near a fence that smelled of carbolic acid, which, as I looked back across the alley, caused me to remember a great abandoned hole that had been the site of a sports arena that had burned before my birth. All that was left, a cliff drop of some forty feet below the heat-buckled walk, was the shell of concrete with weirdly bent and rusted rods that had been its basement. The hole was used for dumping, and after a rain it stank with stagnant water. And now, in my mind, I stood upon the walk, looking out across the hole, past a Hooverville shanty of packing cases and bent tin signs, to a railroad yard that lay beyond. Dark, depthless water lay without motion in the hole. And past the Hooverville, a switch engine idled upon the shining rails, and as a plume of white steam curled slowly from its funnel, I saw a man come out of the shanty, and start up the path which led to the walk above, stooped and dark and sprouting rags from his shoes, hat and sleeves. He shuffled slowly toward me, bringing a threatening cloud of carbolic acid. It was a syphilitic who lived alone in the shanty, between the hole and the railroad yard, coming up to the street only to beg money for food and disinfectant with which to soak his rags. Then in my mind I saw him stretching out a hand from which the fingers had been eaten away, and I ran back to the dark and, and the cold and the present. I shivered, looking toward the street, where up the alley through the tunneling dark three mounted policemen loomed beneath the circular snow-sparkling beam of the street lamp, grasping their horses by their bridles, the heads of both men and animals bent close as though plodding, the leather of saddles and leggings shining.
three white men and three black horses. Then a car passed and they showed in full relief, their shadows flying like dreams across the sparkle of snow and darkness. And as I turned to leave, one of the horses violently tossed its head and I saw the gauntleted fist yanked down. Then there was a wild neigh and the horse plunged off in the dark. The crisp, frantic clanking of metal and the stomping of hooves followed me to the door. Perhaps this was something for Brother Jack to know. But inside they were still in a huddle, and I went back and sat on the bench. I watched them, feeling very young and inexperienced, and yet strangely old with an oldness that watched and waited quietly within me. Outside... The audience had begun to drone, a distant, churning sound that brought back some of the terror of the eviction. My mind flowed. There was a child standing in rompers outside a chicken wire fence, looking in upon a huge black-and-white dog, log-chained to an apple tree. It was Master, the bulldog, and I was the child who was afraid to touch him, although, panting with heat, he seemed to grin back at me like a fat, good-natured man, the saliva roping silvery from his jowls. And as the voices of the crowd churned and mounted and became an impatient splatter of handclaps, I thought of Master's low, hoarse growl. He had barked the same note when angry or when being brought his dinner, when lazily snapping flies or when tearing an intruder to shreds. I liked but didn't trust, old master. I wanted to please but did not trust the crowd. Then I looked at Brother Jack and grinned. That was it, in some ways. He was like a, a toy bull terrier. But now the roar and clapping of hands became a song, and I saw Brother Jack break off and bounce to the door. Okay, brothers, he said. That's our signal. We went in a bunch, out of the dressing room and down a dim passage, a roar with a distant sound. Then it was brighter, and I could see a spotlight blazing the smoky haze. We moved silently, Brother Jack following two very black Negroes and two white men who led the procession. And now the roar of the crowd seemed to rise above us, flaring louder, I noticed the others falling into columns of four, and I was alone in the rear, like the pivot of a drill team. Ahead, a slanting shaft of brightness marked the entrance to one of the levels of the arena, and now, as we passed it, the crowd let out a roar. Then swiftly we were in the dark again, and climbing, the roar seeming to sink below us, and we were moved into a bright blue light and down a ramp to each side of which, stretching away in a curve, I could see rows of blurred faces. And suddenly I was blinded and felt myself crash into the man ahead of me. It always happens the first time, he shouted, stopping to let me get my balance, his voice small in the roar. It's the spotlight! It had picked us up now, and beaming just ahead, led us into the arena and encircled us full in its beam, the crowd thundering. The song burst forth like a rocket to the marching tempo of clapping hands. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Imagine that, I thought. They make the old song sound new. 
At first I was as remote as though I stood in the highest balcony looking on. Then I walked flush into the vibrations of the voices and felt an electric tingling along my spine. We marched toward a flag-draped platform set near the front of the arena, moving through an aisle left between rows of people in folding chairs, then on to the platform, past a number of women who stood when we came on. With a nod, Brother Jack indicated our chairs and we faced the applause, standing. Below and above us was the audience, row after row of faces, the arena a bowl-shaped aggregation of humanity. Then I saw the policemen and was disturbed. What if they recognized me? They were all along the wall. I touched the arm of the man ahead, seeing him turn, his mouth halting in a verse of the song. Why all the police? I said, leaning forward on the back of his chair. Cops, don't worry. Tonight they're ordered to protect us. The meeting is of great political consequences, he said, turning away. Who ordered them to protect us, I thought. But now, the song was ending and the building rang with applause, yells until the chant burst from the rear and spread. No more dispossessing of the dispossessed. No more dispossessing of the dispossessed. The audience seemed to have become one, its breathing and articulation synchronized. I looked at Brother Jack. He stood up front beside a microphone, his feet planted solidly on the dirty canvas-covered platform, looking from side to side, his posture dignified and benign, like a bemused father listening to the performance of his adoring children. I saw his hand go up in a salute, and the audience thundered, and I seemed to move in close, like the lens of a camera, focusing into the scene and feeling the heat and excitement and the pounding of voice and applause against my diaphragm, my eyes flying from face to face, swiftly, fleetingly, searching for someone I could recognize, for someone from the old life, and seeing the faces become vaguer and vaguer the farther they receded from the platform. The speeches began. First, an invocation by a Negro preacher. Then a woman spoke of what was happening to the children. Then came speeches on various aspects of the economic and political situation. I listened carefully trying to snatch a phrase here, a word there, from the arsenal of hard, precise terms. It was becoming a high-keyed evening. Songs flared between speeches. Chants exploded as spontaneously as shouts at a southern revival. And I was somehow attuned to it all. Could feel it, physically. Sitting with my feet on the soiled canvas, I felt as though I had wandered into the percussion section of a symphony orchestra. It worked on me so thoroughly that I soon gave up trying to memorize phrases and simply allowed the excitement to carry me along. Someone pulled on my coat sleeve. My turn had come. I went toward the microphone where Brother Jack himself waited, entering the spot of light that surrounded me like a seamless cage of stainless steel. I halted. The light was so strong that I could no longer see the audience, the bowl of human faces. It was as though a semi-transparent curtain had dropped between us, but through which they could see me, for they were applauding, without themselves being seen. I felt the hard, mechanical isolation of the hospital machine, and I didn't like it. I stood, barely hearing Brother Jack's introduction, 
then he was through, and, and there was an encouraging burst of applause, and I thought, they remember. Some of them were there. The microphone was strange and unnerving. I approached it incorrectly, my voice sounding raspy and full of air, and after a few words I halted, embarrassed. I was getting off to a bad start. Something had to be done. I leaned toward the vague audience closest to the platform and said, Sorry, folks. Um, up to now they've kept me so far away from these shiny electric gadgets I haven't learned the technique. And to tell you the truth, it looks to me like it might bite. Just look at it. It looks like the steel skull of man. Do you think he died of dispossession? It worked. And while they laughed, someone came and made an adjustment. Uh, don't stand too close, he advised. How's that, I said, hearing my voice boom deep and vibrant over the arena. Is that better? There was a ripple of applause. You see, all I needed was a chance. You've granted it. Now it's up to me. Context of White Supremacy. That will end our first audio segment Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. So we did not get to end uh, cleanly with Chapter 16. So we're still kind of in the middle of Chapter 16. We're starting right at the beginning uh, of his speech. So we'll be midway Chapter 16, the paragraph where we will pick up. It says, uh, the applause grew stronger. And from down front, a man's far-carrying voice called out, We with you, brother. You pitch him. We catch him. That's what we'll pick up at uh, for the second audio segment in kind of the middle of Chapter 16, uh, his big speech. Number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, make sure I remind listeners, uh, we started an hour early for the broadcast today. Again, that is because I have yoga teacher, yoga teacher training uh, after the broadcast concludes this evening. Uh, and so we'll be an hour early for the book club for the next eight weeks until yoga teacher training concludes. I hope that is not a major inconvenience uh, for anyone. Uh, archives will be available, but that is the reason. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone and you still want to chime in, you can use the free Vope line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in that address the top line it will ask for a number the number six four one seven one five three six four zero 
next line it will ask for the code that code again five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can put in a real name nickname you can press random keys whatever uh, you're comfortable with once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live broadcast <clears throat> uh, you should be able to hear us same procedure if you would like to participate Look on your screen. You'll see the dial pad, dial pad. Press star six one. I'll see your hand, and we will get you on the line. Uh, question for the listeners: <clears throat> Few things came to mind actually, but uh, what do we make of the protagonist being forced to haul the Jolly Nigger Bank for people who've seen uh, people who've seen Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Uh, this bank that he describes in tremendous detail that he is forced to retrieve from the trash can, and then he tries to throw it down in the gutter, and it gets brought back to him. What what do we make of that metaphorically? Him being forced to continue lugging the Jolly Nigger Bank. One the second question, I guess I would get in. We got another grandfather reference. Uh, what do we make of the metaphor? The main character going to give his big speech in the same arena where a black fighter participated in a crooked fight and was beaten blind. We've had quite a few blind Negroes presented uh, in the text already in a in a book entitled Invisible Man. What do we make of that as a <clears throat> excuse me? What do we make of that as a metaphor? Uh, you heard Professor uh, Lena Hill discussing that very point of the book at the beginning of the program. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you'd like to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Nevada. Well, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, the, I guess to the first question, because I'm not quite sure about the arena question, but it kind of makes me think about how um, no matter what black people do, no matter how sophisticated or civilized we try to be, that old jolly nigger stereotype will always follow us. There's nothing, we can't get away from that. I don't know. That's just like the first thought that came to my head. But um, I'm definitely going to have to think about that some more. I was also wondering the same thing. It's like you can't even throw it away in, in the trash. And that was one of the notes that I had, had taken from um, Chapter 15, that it, it kind of seemed kind of odd that you could have just simply throw some trash away in someone else's trash, just like he was saying. But I don't know if that was maybe like a conflict, you know, maybe just to show just the petty conflicts that – um, we as black people have now. I'm not quite sure if this if the younger woman, or I'm sorry, the, the the female was supposed to be maybe like a melanated female because he did call her yellow. And I don't think maybe, and I was thinking more along the lines of maybe just like a light skinned black person, not so much in uh, as far as a, a quote unquote Asian person. So I, I definitely thought that that was kind of odd just to make a, all that big fuss and to call the police, which also seemed odd. But then um, and for her to say, well, you know, you 
you down south, Negroes are, you know, making it bad for the rest of us just over trash. And then a few minutes later, he's called a young northern Negro. So it's like we really can't tell who is who. But then the whole the southern Negro thing that kind of made me think about, um, I think it was the warmth of other suns and how um, the people who, uh, the black people who had migrated um, early in the um, Great Migration, how they kind of started looking down upon the, the newcomers because maybe the newcomers, um, I forgot, the one of the main um, stories within that book, I think was a female, how she kind of maybe wore her rag outside and then maybe hung her clothes outside and stuff like that. And then her neighbors were kind of, you know, saying, well, you know, kind of looking down upon her. So it kind of made me think about that. Uh, the other thing that I thought was curious was how this banging started because there wasn't any heat and the invisible man, he says, get rid of your cotton pick and ways, act civilized. And then, and that's when he breaks that jolly Negro bank. And I'm thinking how civilized is it for you to take someone else's property and bang it up against a, a, a pipe and then break it and then hide it. It's so it's kind of like civilized. It, it's, it's really kind of funny. And I've experienced that in my own life where it's like some, Sometimes even like with me, like in, when I was in a more confused state, me looking down upon, you know, maybe another black person who, who was doing something that I didn't, um, maybe I didn't do, but then I could have been doing something that they didn't, couldn't, you know, they didn't approve of. So it's like who civilizes so um, subjective depending on who, depending on, you know, what your beliefs are. Um, I guess that was... Uh, and then the part with Mary um, just talking about how she really couldn't take or accept the $100 bill, how they would ask, how white people would ask him so many different questions. I definitely like how he brought that out in the book um, because I feel like that's still something that happens today. Um, uh, the other thing from uh, Chapter 16, I, I really feel like there's like an – idealization I don't know if I said that right but of like between the protagonist and this brother Jack and just how he when they're in the stadium and how he describes uh, brother Jack's posture as dignified and benign and he's like a bemused father listening to the performance of his adorned children and I really think maybe brother Jack might be like a metaphor for you know all of you know, the suspected white supremacists, how they really do look at us as children and how they know how to, I guess, pull our strings. And even how the invisible man said, you know, he tried to remember, memorize his lines, but then in the atmosphere, he just kind of got wrapped all up in it. And, you know, just getting to us with, through music and through, like, high-energy areas or high-energy um, events um, and just getting us to kind of listen or, you know, just – do basically whatever they want us to do. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged, Red in Nevada. Uh, important point, this uh, book, it was published in 1952, but this portion uh, of the novel is set. It starts uh, in the 1920s uh, after World War II. So 100 years Negras having a $100 bill in any era is cause for a tasing, beating, at minimum, police suspicion. Uh, I think Rob in Wisconsin, did you have commentary, sir? Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
Can you hear me clearly? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, to answer the uh, first question about the uh, nigger bank, I thought that um, with him getting a job, uh, he was starting to maybe have the thought process of becoming um, quote-unquote civilized and um, not like the niggas over there. And I think that the breaking of the bank um, symbolized that <clears throat> no matter if you stand up straight and act civilized, that you still can escape that um, racial classification being classified as African-American or black. And when he left um, the apartment and had the package and dumped it into the garbage can, I thought that it further um, highlighted that you can't escape the classification. And to answer the uh, second question um, about the uh, giving the speech where um, the boxer was even blind, um, that's uh, a difficult one, but I'll take a stab at it. I thought that it um, was kind of getting at um, how the system is invisible, and as black people, um, he's going there to give a speech, and, you know, as black people, sometimes you get a job, and quote-unquote, uh, in the post-racial era, um, I thought that maybe that's, uh, maybe that is what uh, was being highlighted uh, in that section. Interesting. That is definitely one to ponder on. Uh, Further folks have commentary. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Hopefully we did not cause too much of a disruption with the slightly earlier start time. Uh, as I check to see if other folks have commentary, uh, some of the notes that I took from chapter 15 and the I guess portion of chapter 16 that we did. Uh, let's see. I think there are a number of different instances where the protagonist is looking at items that black people have and wondering why they have this item why do you have this what what reason could you have for possibly wanting to possess this i think he does that with um not just with mary and the jolly nigger bank that i am calling it uh, i think he does that when he's walking past the eviction and he's looking at all their stuff thrown out and he's like oh wait a minute they've got these bones and things did you know were they minstrels uh what have you uh they got their uh slave papers and the marcus garvey uh documents as well but he's looking at that and he says that distinctly asked that question like whoa were they were they minstrels why would they have these uh dancing items and bones and such uh and you know unless they were doing some sort of dancing or music or whatever uh and that's uh gonna be kind of a recurring theme uh in the book uh black people having items that might suggest white supremacy racism or at minimum uh, i'm not sure what this item means to you why would you have such a thing and him questioning why uh mary even has this uh jolly 
nigger bank. Um, he seems to not understand. In fact, he says, uh, enraged by the tolerance or lack of discrimination or whatever that allowed Mary to keep such a self-mocking image around as by the knocking. Uh, and I might even go to Red's point where she was saying uh, some of us, we uh, kind of have a tendency to look down on other black people for things that they do or don't do. Uh, and you know, kind of seems like what's happening here is he's about to break into his own uh, fit of rage to bang on the pipe and, and break this, uh, the bank and the whole nine. Uh, interesting use of the word uh, kinky came up. I think we were just talking about that with black hair uh, and him repeatedly pointing out the, the kink of the uh, hair on the Jolly Nigger Bank. Um, I think there's so many examples of black people having the attitude that he projects about the other tenants that are upset that there's no heat <laughs> when, you know, he's saying act civilized and get rid of your... Um, cotton patch ways so many of the black people in the book that's the position that they have about black people other black really all black people except themselves it seems sometimes uh that was uh the way that i think he said that the black students at the college that was how they looked at the other black people like true blood who didn't attend college even you know without the incest thing uh that's how uh dr bledsoe that's how he talks about the other black people uh that are around the college. That's how the narrator talks about uh, black people uh, throughout the book, even before he got to college. That was how he was talking about black people. Uh, the black female who makes him dig the bank out of the trash, the black male who then uh, picks it up and gives it back to him. I mean, we've heard it repeatedly. Uh, black people throughout the book have that attitude. And you hear that today. Uh, if anything, I think it just reflects the uh, the success in the system of white supremacy where uh, black people end up being blamed for our mistreatment, our own terrorism, uh, where it somehow gets attributed to us and not whites, that it's some sort of uh, character flaw on our part. If we could, you know, just straighten up and fly right, we wouldn't have all these issues. Um, let's see. The roaches. Uh, if I could take a moment, just, I mean, Flint, Whatever situ uh, however one would like to process it, Chicago, that's one that gets talked about a lot. Uh, and since the warmth of other suns was missing, Chicago, that mentioned that was uh, one of the main cities uh, where you had a lot of black people flocking to, uh, the great city of Chicago. And I think that's where Ida Mae Gladney went, the character that Red mentioned, uh, who had her laundry outside. And uh, she was teased, I guess, for being Southern and Negro. Lots of that is in warmth of other sun, black people being picked on and teased uh, who came south came uh, north from the south, uh, but whites and their ability to warehouse black people in really terrible situations, they are exemplary. Uh, and really this particular time period, because you did have that transition of so many black people, millions really, uh, transitioning over decades uh, from the south to the north and west of this part of the world, because of that, whites in those areas that were getting the influx of black people, whoa, we have a housing crisis on our hands. Where are we going to store the Negroes? And they went to work immediately on uh, putting up these little shanties. We talked about that with family property, Beryl Satter, uh, her white father, Chicago specifically, stacking black people in these type of residences where you don't have heat, 
roaches, the filth, exorbitant rent. She talked about that in Warmth of Other Sons repeatedly to put you in a little shack uh, like this and then charge you three, four, five, ten times uh, what the property is actually worth and you're renting. You don't own anything. You're not accumulating anything and can be a, the eviction that we saw last week. Standard operating uh, I said saw the eviction that we read last week. Standard operating procedure. You miss one payment. I don't care if you've been paying, if you've been staying here uh, for 15 years, paying your rent on time every month for 15 years, never been late on a payment. You can miss one payment and whap how out of here. Get in some other niggers and we start the whole process all over again. Uh, and continuing even 2018 in some degrees. Uh, next, let's see. The briefcase uh, that he mentions from the Battle Royal. I feel like that's such a, a great element of the story uh, that the relevance of things from the beginning of the book or different parts of the book, uh, they remain salient as you continue. So you can't just forget about what you've read. In fact, you might even come to have a deeper or better understanding of what we read in the first few chapters or what have you. One of the reasons why I think this book is so incredible and you can read it again and again and again and learn new things every time and just get a, a even more profound understanding for what he's uh, bringing forth. But uh, him referencing the battle royal uh, explicitly and his uh, prized briefcase as he begins his career. Again, I think the the affinity that the narrator has for speechifying, uh, this is, you know, what he deems to be important. Uh, I don't think it's the money per se. I mean, that all is, is a nice perk. But I think even if he wasn't given that advance, the $300 and the nice apartment and all that, it's the uh, being given the opportunity to get up in front of people and speak uh, and feel like, yes, I am important. People uh, listen to me. And I think that is uh, big time in the system of racism, white supremacy. I think that happens frequently uh, for victims of racism. Uh, let's see. Uh respectability politics, uh, the female who made him get her trash out. I think just not understanding the system of, of racism, white supremacy, that if you know we clean up enough, James Baldwin talked about that in Evidence of Things Not Seen about the Atlanta child murders, that he felt like his generation of black people, that you know they really believed if we you know just get enough bars of soap and take enough showers and you know comb our hair and do all that, wash our clothes, iron, and are super, super neat and sparkling and clean, and we you know flossed our teeth five times after breakfast that then that'll show whites and you know they'll do right and just in my view not understanding what white supremacy racism is you can have as many block clean up days as you like that doesn't mean anything to, it might make it more attractive for them to come in what they call gentrify your area uh i thought that was a great point doesn't matter if you are an ignorant backwards southern negro or some you know upstart uh, impertinent New York Negro doesn't matter either way it's going to be something bad bad about black people Ugh, anti-blackness all the way through I think he really uh, that is a point of emphasis throughout the text um, I thought the I don't remember who it was but the person who made the point last week at the eviction when the protagonist he goes and does some speechifi speechifying uh, and thinks you know people are listening to me my words are important and the person last week said that I think sometimes in the system, victims, we have a tendency to uh, attribute things, attribute a greater importance to ourselves and our actions than is warranted. 
he thinks that, you know, he was some great catalyst in this mob that took place at the eviction when it seemed like that was going to happen anyway, whether he was there or not. He got trampled in the snow and all of this, uh, and the crowd was moving in that direction anyway uh, to go and trample the police officers and brawl it out with them before he got up to say a word. Uh, so he sees that, oh my gosh, the newspaper has picked up, you know, this eviction scandal and wow, I'm even mentioned, even though they don't say his name, he's just referenced as a, uh, a troublemaker. Like, wow, he feels, you know, special, uh, elevated above the other black people. Like, wow, you know, they listen to me and I'm in the paper. I'm, I'm important. And he goes and spends even more money, uh, than he had intended thinking that he is somehow important. I think that is a valuable lesson uh, in the system of white supremacy because of that feeling of invisibility. I think oftentimes uh, there is a tremendous allure for things to draw attention, for us to get the spotlight, as they say. Sometimes it doesn't even matter what we have to do to get that spotlight. Uh, continuing, well, I guess so now I'm moving to chapter 16. Most of my notes from chapter 15, chapter 16. Uh, the whites, uh, that... That metaphor about the boxer, black boxer being beaten uh, blind and then dying in a in a old folks home for, I guess, uh, the visually impaired. I thought the sentence where Brother Jack, where he tells uh, the protagonist, he says, you know, we're uh, we're going to go out and us three whites will speak first. Uh, and then you'll speak. And we got a little formula about this. We wait until the crowd is, you know, really lathered up and impatient and all that. And then, bang, you know, right at that moment, then we go out and he grins about it. Uh, and then they leave him after, he says, you know, you read over your speech, you're prepared. OK. Boop. And then the whites, they go talk amongst themselves and they leave him alone. He emphasized that word lonely. Um, I think that's important. Reminds me of that fighter who's beaten blind because they said he lost his sight in a crooked fight. These whites are here. They already know the setup. They know the deal. They are way more informed about what's going to happen with this process than the narrator. That's the same situation as the prize fighter. Really, that's the same situation of racism, white supremacy all the time. They are much more informed about what's happening uh, around all of this. And that puts them at a huge advantage that, yes, and many of us, we end up being beaten to a pulp uh, because of that, because we just don't understand. We don't know as much as they do about what's happening in certain situations that we're in. Uh, let's see. Uh, anything else I want to make sure I get in. We got a grandfather uh, reference. I think that's worthy of a pause and uh, thought anytime that grandfather is referenced in his dying words. And if they apply to what is taking place uh, at this event, I guess it might be uh, one of those. It might be better to hear what his speech is going to be since we stopped right at the when he was about to begin his speech. It might be uh, better to hear what he's going to say and then ruminate a little bit and see if if grandfather's words apply. But I think just the fact that grandfather has been mentioned before the speech definitely warrants some thinking uh, about those last words. Uh, and I thought the imagery of the police officers on the white race soldiers on the black horses that white over black power dynamic and, and not just white over black, but uh, white people, white humans over black 
beasts, non-humans, that dynamic. And then shortly after that, he writes uh, about uh, when they were going to speak, uh, once they get to the auditorium, it was the whites and then the Negroes. Uh, it was almost the same white before black, white over black uh, power dynamic. And it, I just had the echo since you just saw the cops and the horses of that black people are not even people. Uh, it's white humans and then black beasts uh, doing the following or serving. I'll stop there. Uh, some of this, I think, will have more commentary once we hear the speechifying. Uh, other folks, anything else folks want to make sure uh, they share based on what we heard, chapter 15 and the little bit of chapter 16 that we heard? Folks satisfied? Again, folks might have been uh, thrown off with the time change uh, uh, starting uh, one hour earlier, which again will be the case for the next, or I guess this is week one, so the next seven weeks will be one hour earlier for the book club. Hopefully folks will catch up without a problem. Uh, with If folks do not have any further commentary, we will go ahead and get to second audio segment. Anything else folks want to make sure they get in? Thought, question, something didn't make sense? Grant, if you did not get your comment in, just jot a note down. Uh, we should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes, and you'll be much more informed because you will have heard the speech, uh, which is exactly where we will pick up. So again, we are in chapter uh, 16. I don't have the page number, uh, but the uh, paragraph that we are starting on, again, the applause grew stronger, and from down front, a man's far-carrying voice called out, we with you, brother. You pitch him. We catch him. That's where we're starting at. Audio segment number two, context of white supremacy. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Audio segment number two. The applause grew stronger. And from down front, a man's far crying voice called out. We with you, brother. You pitch him. We catch him. That was all I needed. I'd made a contact, and it was as though his voice was that of them all. I was wound up, nervous. I might have been anyone, might have been trying to speak in a foreign language, for I couldn't remember the correct words and phrases from the pamphlets. I had to fall back upon tradition, and since it was a political meeting, I selected one of the political techniques that I'd heard so often at home. The old, down-to-earth, I'm-sick-and-tired-of-the-way-they've-been-treating-us approach. I couldn't see them, so I addressed the microphone and the cooperative voice before me. You know, there are those who think, we who are gathered here are dumb, I shouted. Tell me if I'm right. That's a strike, brother, the voice called. You pitched a strike. Yes, they think we're dumb. They call us the common people. But I've been sitting here listening and looking and trying to understand what's so common about us. I think they're guilty of a gross misstatement of fact. We are the uncommon people. Another strike, the voice called in the thunder, and I paused, holding up my hand to halt the noise. Yes, we're the uncommon people, and I'll tell you why. 
They call us dumb, and they treat us dumb. And what do they do with dumb ones? Think about it. Look around. They've got a slogan and a policy. They've got what Brother Jack would call a theory and a practice. It's never give a sucker an even break. It's dispossess him, evict him, use his empty head for a spittoon and his back for a doormat. It's break him, deprive him of his wages. It's use his protest as a sounding brass to frighten him into silence. It's beat his ideas and his hopes and homely aspirations into a tinkling symbol, a small cracked symbol to tinkle on the 4th of July. Only muffle it. Don't let it sound too loud. Beat it in stop time. Give the dumb bunnies the soft shoe dance, the big wormy apple, the Chicago getaway, the shoe fly, don't bother me. And do you know what makes us so uncommon? I whispered hoarsely. We let them do it. The silence was profound. The smoke boiled in the spotlight. Another strike, I heard the voice call sadly. Ain't no use to protest the decision. And I thought, is he with me or against me? Dispossession. Dispossession is the word, I went on. They've tried to dispossess us of our manhood and womanhood, of our childhood and adolescence. You heard the sisters' statistics on our infant mortality rate. Don't you know you're lucky to be uncommonly born? Why, they even tried to dispossess us of our dislike of being dispossessed. And I'll tell you something else. If we don't resist, pretty soon they'll succeed. These are the days of dispossession, the season of homelessness, the time of evictions. We'll be dispossessed of the very brains in our heads, and we're so uncommon that we can't even see it. Perhaps we're too polite. Perhaps we don't care to look at unpleasantness. They think we're blind, uncommonly blind, and I don't wonder. Think about it. They've dispossessed us each of one eye from the day we're born. So now we can only see in straight, white lines. We're a nation of one-eyed mice. Did you ever see such a sight in your life? Such an uncommon sight. And ain't a farmer's wife in the house, the voice called through the titters of bitter laughter. It's another strike. I leaned forward. You know, if we aren't careful, they'll slip up on our blind sides and plop, out goes our last good eye and we're blind as bats. Someone's afraid we'll see something. Maybe that's why so many of our fine friends are present tonight. Blue steel pistols and blue serge suits and all. But I believe... One eye is enough to lose without resistance, and I think that's your belief. So let's get together. Did you ever notice, my dumb one-eyed brothers, how two totally blind men can get together and help one another along? They stumble, they bump into things, but they avoid dangers, too. They get along. Let's get together, uncommon people, 
with both our eyes we may see what makes us so uncommon. We'll see who makes us so uncommon. Up to now, we've been like a couple of one-eyed men walking down opposite sides of the street. Someone starts throwing bricks and we start blaming each other and fighting among ourselves. But we're mistaken. Because there's a third party present. There's a, a smooth, oily scoundrel running down the middle of the wide gray street throwing stones. He's the one. He's doing the damage. He claims he needs the space. He calls it his freedom. And he knows he's got us on our blind side and he's been popping away till he's got us silly. Uncommonly silly. In fact, his freedom has got us damn nigh blind. Hush now. Don't call no names, I called, holding up my palm. I say to hell with this guy. I say, come on, cross over. Let's make an alliance. I look out for you, and you look out for me. I'm, uh, I'm good at catching, and I've got a damn good pitching arm. You don't pitch no balls, brother. Not a single one. Let's make a miracle, I shouted. Let's take back our pillaged eyes. Let's reclaim our sight. Let's combine and spread our vision. Peep around the corner. There's a storm coming. Look down the avenue. There's only one enemy. Can't you see his face? It was a natural pause. There was applause, but as it burst, I realized that the flow of words had stopped. What would I do when they started to listen again? I leaned forward, straining to see through the barrier of light. They were mine out there, and I couldn't afford to lose them. Yet I suddenly felt naked, sensing that the words were returning and that something was about to be said that I shouldn't reveal. Look at me, the words ripped from my solar plexus. I haven't lived here long. Times are hard. I've known despair. I'm from the South. And since coming here, I've known eviction. I'd come to distrust the world. But look at me now. Something strange is happening. I'm here before you. I must confess. And suddenly, Brother Jack was beside me, pretending to adjust the microphone. Careful now, he whispered. Don't end your usefulness before you've begun. I'm all right, I said, leaning toward the mic. May I confess, I shouted. You are my friends. We share a common disinheritance. And it's said that confession is good for the soul. Have I your permission? You batting 500, brother, the voice called. There was a stir behind me. I waited until it was quiet and hurried on. Silence is consent, I said so I'll have it out. I'll confess it. My shoulders were squared, my chin thrust forward, and my eyes focused straight into the light. Something strange and miraculous and transforming is taking place in me right now, as I stand here before you. I could feel the words forming themselves, slowly falling into place. The light seemed to boil opalescently like liquid soap shaken gently in a bottle. Let me describe it. It is something odd. It is something that I'm sure I'd never experience anywhere else in the world. I feel your eyes upon me. I hear the pulse of your breathing. And now, at this moment, with your black and white eyes upon me, I feel... I feel... I stumbled in a stillness so complete that I could hear the gears of the huge clock mounted somewhere on the balcony, gnawing upon time. What is it, son? 
What do you feel? A shrill voice cried. My voice fell to a husky whisper. I feel, I feel suddenly that I have become more human. Do you understand? More human. Not that I have become a man, for I was born a man, but that I am more human. I feel strong. I feel able to get things done. I feel that I can see sharp and clear and far down the dim corridor of history, and in it I can hear the footsteps of militant fraternity. No. Wait. Let me confess, I feel the urge to affirm my feelings. I feel that here, after a long and desperate and uncommonly blind journey, I have come home. Home. With your eyes upon me, I feel that I have found my true family, my true people, my true country. I am a new citizen of the country of your vision, a native of your fraternal land. I feel that here, tonight, in this old arena, the new is being born and the vital old revived. In each of you, in me, in us all, sisters, brothers, we are the true patriots, the citizens of tomorrow's world, will be dispossessed no more. The applause struck like a clap of thunder. I stood transfixed, unable to see my body, quivering with the roar. I made an indefinite movement. What should I do? Wave to them? I faced the shouts, cheers, shrill whistling, my eyes burning from the light. I felt a large tear roll down my face, and I wiped it away with embarrassment. Others were starting down. Why didn't someone help me to get out of the spot before I spoiled everything? But with the tears came an increase of applause, and I lifted my head, surprised, my eyes streaming. The sound seemed to roar up in waves. They had begun to stomp the floor, and I was laughing and bowing my head now, unashamed. It grew in volume. The sound of splitting wood came from the rear. I, I, I grew tired, but still they cheered until finally I gave up and started back toward the chairs. Red spots danced before my eyes. Someone took my hand and leaned toward my ear. You did it, goddammit, you did it! And I was puzzled by the hot mixture of hate and admiration bursting through his words as I thanked him and removed my hand from his crushing grasp. Thanks! I said, but the others had raised them to the right pitch. I shuddered. He sounded as though he would like to throttle me. I couldn't see, and there was much confusion, and suddenly someone spun me around, pulling me off balance, and I felt myself pressed against warm, feminine softness, holding on. Oh, brother, brother, a woman's voice cried into my ear. Little brother. And I felt the hot, moist pressure of her lips upon my cheek. Blurred figures bumped about me. I stumbled as in a game of blind man's bluff. My hands were shaken, my back pounded, my face was sprayed with the saliva of enthusiasm, and I decided that the next time I stood in the spotlight, it would be wise to wear dark glasses. It was a deafening demonstration. We left them cheering, knocking over chairs, stomping the floor. Brother Jack guided me off the platform. It's time we left, he shouted. Things have truly begun to move. All that energy must be organized. 
He guided me through the shouting crowd, hands continuing to touch me as I stumbled along. Then we entered the dark passage, and when we reached the end, the spots faded from my eyes and I began to see again. Brother Jack paused at the door. Listen to them, he said, just waiting to be told what to do. And I could still hear the applause booming behind us. Then several of the others broke off their conversation and faced us. The applause muffled down behind the closing door. Well, what do you think, Brother Jack said enthusiastically. How's that for a starter? There was a tense silence. I looked from face to face, black and white, feeling swift panic. They were grim. Well, Brother Jack said, his voice suddenly hard. I could hear the creaking of someone's shoes. Well, he repeated. Then the man with the pipe spoke up, a swift charge of tension building with his words. It was a most unsatisfactory beginning, he said quietly, punctuating the unsatisfactory with a stab of his pipe. He was looking straight at me, and I was puzzled. I looked at the others. Their faces were noncommittal, stolid. Unsatisfactory, Brother Jack exploded, and what alleged process of thought led to that brilliant pronouncement? This is no time for cheap sarcasm, brother, the brother with the pipe said. Sarcasm? You made the sarcasm. No, it isn't a time for sarcasm, nor for imbecilities, nor for plain damn fooleries. This is a key moment in the struggle. Things have just begun to move, and suddenly you are unhappy. You are afraid of success? What's wrong? Isn't this just what we've been working for? Again, ask yourself. You are the great leader. Look into your crystal ball. Brother Jack swore. Brothers, someone said. Brother Jack swore and swung to another brother. You, he said to the husky man, have you the courage to tell me what's going on here? Have we become a street corner gang? Silence. Someone shuffled his feet. The man with the pipe was looking now at me. Did I do something wrong? I said. The worst you could have done, he said coldly. Stunned. I looked at him wordlessly. Never mind, Brother Jack said suddenly calm. Just what is the problem, brother? Let's have it out right here. Just what is your complaint? Not a complaint, an opinion. If we are still allowed to express our opinions, the brother with the pipe said. Your opinion, then, Brother Jack said. In my opinion, the speech was wild, hysterical, politically irresponsible, and dangerous, he snapped. And worse than that, it was incorrect. He pronounced incorrect as though the term described the most heinous crime imaginable. And I stared at him, open-mouthed, feeling a vague guilt. So, Brother Jack said, looking from face to face, there's been a caucus and decisions have been made. Did you take minutes, Brother Chairman? Have you recorded your wise disputations? There was no caucus, and the opinion still holds, the brother with the pipe said. No meeting, but just the same, there has been a caucus, and decisions have been reached even before the event is finished. But brother, someone tried to intervene, a most brilliant operation, Brother Jack went on, smiling now, a consummate example of skilled theoretical Nijinsky's leaping ahead of history. 
But come down, brothers, come down, or you'll land on your dialectics. The stage of history hasn't built that far. The month after next, perhaps, but not yet. And what do you think, Brother Restrum? he asked, pointing to a big fellow of the shape and size of supercargo. I think the brother's speech was backward and reactionary, he said. I wanted to answer, but could not. No wonder his voice had sounded so mixed when he congratulated me. I could only stare into the broad face with its hate-burning eyes. And you, Brother Jack said. I liked his speech, the man said. I thought it was quite effective. And you, Brother Jack said to the next man. I'm of the opinion that it was a mistake. And just why? Because we must strive to reach the people through their intelligence. Exactly, the brother with the pipe said. It was the antithesis of the scientific approach. Ours is a reasonable point of view. We are champions of a scientific approach to society. And such a speech as we've identified ourselves with tonight destroys everything that has been said before. The audience isn't thinking, it's yelling its head off. Sure, it's acting like a mob, the big black brother said. Brother Jack laughed. And this mob, he said, is it a mob against us or is it a mob for us? How do our muscle-bound scientists answer that? But before they could answer, he continued, perhaps you're right. Perhaps it is a mob. But if it is, then it seems to be a mob that's simply boiling over to come along with us. And I shouldn't have to tell you theoreticians that science bases its judgments upon experiment. You're jumping to conclusions before the experiment has run its course. In fact, what's happening here tonight represents only one step in the experiment, the initial step, the release of energy. I can understand that it should make you timid. You're afraid of carrying through to the next step because it's up to you to organize that energy. Well, it's going to be organized and not by a bunch of timid, sideline theoreticians arguing in a vacuum, but by getting out and leading the people. He was fighting mad, looking from face to face, his red head bristling, but no one answered his challenge. It's disgusting, he said, pointing to me. Our new brother has succeeded by instinct where for two years your science has failed and now all you can offer is destructive criticism. I beg to differ, the brother with the pipe said. To point out the dangerous nature of his speech isn't destructive criticism. Far from it. Like the rest of us, the new brother must learn to speak scientifically. He must be trained. So at last it occurs to you, Brother Jack said, pulling down the corners of his mouth. Training. All is not lost. There's hope that our wild but effective speaker may be tamed. The scientists perceive a possibility. Very well, it has been arranged, perhaps not scientifically, but arranged nevertheless. For the next few months, our new brother is to undergo a period of intense study and indoctrination under the guidance of Brother Hambro. That's right, he said as I started to speak. I meant to tell you later. But that's a long time, I said. How am I going to live? 
Your salary will continue, he said. Meanwhile, you'll be guilty of no further unscientific speeches to upset our brother's scientific tranquility. In fact, you ought to stay completely out of Harlem. Perhaps then we'll see if you brothers are as swift at organizing as you are at criticizing. It's your move, brothers. I think Brother Jack is correct, the short bald man said. I don't think that we, of all people, should be afraid of the people's enthusiasm. Uh, what we've got to do is to guide it into channels where it will do the most good. The rest was silent, the brother with the pipe looking at me unbendingly. Come, Brother Jack said. Let's get out of here. If we keep our eyes on the real goal, our chances are better than ever before. And let's remember that science isn't a game of chess, although chess may be played scientifically. The other thing to remember is that if we are to organize the masses, we must first organize ourselves. Thanks to our new brother, things have changed. We mustn't fail to make use of our opportunity. From now on, it's up to you. We shall see, the brother with the pipe said. And as for the new brother, a few talks with brother Hambro wouldn't harm anyone. Hambro, I thought, going out. Who the hell is he? I suppose I'm lucky they didn't fire me. So, now I've got to go to school again. Out in the night, the group was breaking up and brother Jack drew me aside. Don't worry, he said. You'll find Brother Hambro interesting, and a period of training was inevitable. Your speech tonight was a test which you passed with flying colors. So, now you'll be prepared for some real work. Here's the address. See Brother Hambro the first thing in the morning. He's already been notified. When I reached home, tiredness seemed to explode within me. My nerves remained tense even after I had had a hot shower and crawled into bed. In my disappointment, I wanted only to sleep, but my mind kept wandering back to the rally. It had actually happened. I had been lucky and had said the right things at the right time, and they had liked me. Or perhaps I had said the wrong things in the right places. Whatever. They had liked it regardless of the brothers, and from now on, my life would be different. It was different already. For now, I realized that I meant everything that I had said to the audience, even though I hadn't known that I was going to say those things. I had intended only to make a good appearance, to say enough to keep the brotherhood interested in me. What had come out was completely uncalculated as though another self within me had taken over and held forth. And lucky that it had, or I might have been fired. Even my technique had been different. No one who had known me at college would have recognized the speech. But that was as it should have been, for I was someone new. Even though I had spoken in a very old-fashioned way, <laughs> I had been transformed, and now, lying restless in bed in the dark, I felt a kind of affection for the blurred audience whose faces I had never clearly seen. They had been with me from the first word. They had wanted me to succeed. 
Unfortunately, I had spoken for them, and they had recognized my words. <sighs> I belong to them. I sat up, grasping my knees in the dark as the thought struck home. Perhaps this was what was meant by being dedicated and set aside. Very well, if so, <laughs> I accepted it. My possibilities were suddenly broadened. As a Brotherhood spokesman, I would represent not only my own group, but one that was much larger. The audience was mixed, their claims broader than race. I would do whatever was necessary to serve them well. If they could take a chance with me, then I'd do the very best that I could. How else could I save myself from disintegration? I sat there in the dark trying to recall the sequence of the speech. Already it seemed the expression of someone else. Yet I knew that it was mine, and mine alone. And if it was recorded by a stenographer, I would have to look at it tomorrow. <laughs> Words, phrases skipped through my mind. I saw the blue haze again. What had I meant by saying that I had become more human? Was it a phrase that I had picked up from some preceding speaker or a slip of the tongue? For a moment I thought of my grandfather and quickly dismissed him. What had an old slave to do with humanity? Perhaps it was something that Woodbridge had said in the literature class back at college. <laughs> oh, I could see him vividly, half drunk on words and full of contempt and exaltation, pacing before the blackboard chalked with quotations from Joyce and Yates and Sean O'Casey, thin, nervous, neat, pacing as though he, he walked a high wire of meaning upon which no one of us would ever dare venture. I could hear him. Stephen's problem, like ours, was not actually one of creating the uncreated conscience of his race, but of creating the uncreated features of his face. Our task is that of making ourselves individuals. The conscience of a race is the gift of its individuals who see, evaluate, record. We create the race by creating ourselves, and then, to our great astonishment, we will have created something far more important. We will have created a culture. Why waste time creating a conscience for something that doesn't exist? For you see, blood and skin do not think. But no, it wasn't Woodbridge. More human. Did I mean that I had become less of what I was? Less a Negro? Or that I was less a being apart? Less an exile from down home, the South? But all this is negative. To become less in order to become more? Perhaps that was it. But in what way more human? Even Woodridge hadn't spoken of such things. It was a mystery once more, as at the eviction I had uttered words that had possessed me. I thought of Bledsoe and Norton and, and what they had done. By kicking me into the dark... They'd made me see the possibility of achieving something greater and more important than I'd ever dreamed. 
Here was a way that didn't lead through the back door, a way not limited by black and white, but a way which, if one lived long enough and worked hard enough, could lead to the highest possible rewards. Here was a way to have a part in making the big decisions, of seeing through the mystery of how the country, the world, really operated. For the first time, lying there in the dark, I could glimpse the possibilities of being more than a member of a race. It was no dream the possibility existed. I had only to work and learn and survive in order to go to the top. Ha! Sure, I'd study with Hambro, I'd learn what he had to teach, and a lot more. Let tomorrow come. <laughs> the sooner I was through with this Hambro, the sooner I could get started with my work. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, narrated by the great Joe Morton. Thank God scandal is over context of white supremacy we started an hour early we will be starting an hour early for the next seven weeks courtesy of Gus T participating in yoga teacher training which starts promptly at the end of this program uh, hopefully that will not disrupt uh, the listener participation too much uh, folks will be able to join in and keep up because uh, just extraordinary literature from Ralph Ellison. Uh, number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let me get that question again now that you heard the speech. What do we make of the narrator mentioning the photograph black prize fighter being beaten blind in the very arena where he gave his speech a speech he gave where he seems to be saying that he's blind and can't even see the audience while he's giving the speech pitch that question again my other question one you can ponder if you have a thought today great but this is one we should all be thinking about uh maybe should have been thinking about from page one but certainly we'll think about from now to the end this book is not called the invisible man it's ralph ellison's invisible man the significance of there being no definite article as they call it not the invisible man just ralph ellison's invisible man why is that important, or is it important at all? Folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have comments, anything you did not get to share from Chapter 15, now we have heard the entirety of Chapter 16. Uh, if you dialed in with a hand up, wine should be open. Uh, let's see. Red in Nevada, Robin, Wisconsin. I'll nab other folks as I see hands. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, the first thing I wanted to point out, I really didn't quite understand the speech. I felt like it was a real, um, a lot of metaphors. It was almost like it was alluding to something great, but didn't quite give um, 
full details on what maybe like what these people should do or or even the plan that maybe the brotherhood may have had even if it's not like a full plan i know i've heard the metaphor you know you don't want to know don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing something like that but even still it didn't it was just like a lot of like metaphors and i I did understand i did catch the part where he was talking about he was blind and he didn't want the audience to be blind but then you know two blind men they can you know work together and uh, make something happen i still don't I, i still have to ponder about the the arena um question i definitely thought that it was um uh the the part where brother jack said don't in your useful usefulness um before you've begun and i feel like um maybe that might be alluding to something like in the future because it it definitely seems like he they already know they're already kind of let him know you know you're replaceable just because we've kind of picked you out as that maybe token negro we can make anyone into a token negro so um and even he wasn't even um it didn't really even seem like he was really trying to really tell the truth about, I guess, the the arrangement. The part after the speech where I think it was the black, I think it was a black male brother who kind of um, was was uh, um, like congratulating him on this speech, and he said, you know, I thought he sounded as if I thought he might throttle me. I thought that that was was interesting, almost like another you know, um, subliminal anti-sexual part kind of put in the book, kind of like the young Emerson. Uh, uh, I I also noticed where some of the brothers, after the speech, they thought that it wasn't a scientific, um, in which they kind of are basically seeming like they're supposed to be theoreticians and, and scientists. And... Um, kind of going against Brother Jack, which it really seems like he's supposed to be a leader of this little group. And um, just, I thought that that was interesting and how Brother Jack was like, well, you know, are we supposed to be like a, a, a street gang because we're having this, this somewhat fight? And I didn't think that the fight was that bad, but, you know, just not even, even like within these little groups, maybe really not even being able to voice your true opinion. And just the whole scientist thing and how Jack was saying, you know, well, this is an experiment. You have to first, you know, let the experiment play out before you can really uh, judge the results. The other thing, I really, I I thought it was interesting how, um, I think it it was Brother Jack again, and he was um, talking about uh, the passage passage says, the other thing, to remember is that if we are to organize the masses, we must first organize ourselves. And I think that's something that um, really, as, as victims, we kind of don't have that full grasp of. And I guess the last thing that I'll mention is just towards the end of the chapter. Um, th- I feel like this might be one of the very few times where um, black or darkness, I see it kind of is used as a positive where the uh, the protagonist, he was saying, by uh, being by kicking me into the dark, they've made me see the possibility of achieving something greater and more important than I'd ever dreamed of. 
and it's not just, you know, black and despair, but it's also, I guess, you know, even though it kind of references, you know, they, you know, just left him out to dry, I guess he's a metaphor, but he still, he thinks that this is a great opportunity, and then he goes on, and then there was the part, um, you know, where he goes on to say, I glimpsed the possibility of being more than a member of a race. And so I just think that that's where kind of playing into this whole individual individuality um, and how that's supposed to be better for him. And that's also supposed to be better for the race. And I thought that that was interesting, just kind of something that um, I think a lot of us is confused, or at least with me being confused, like if I'm better, then that'll make the whole black race look better. And that can be farther from the truth to the truth. The last thing, with him being possessed by these words, it kind of reminds me of a preacher. So I used to go to church, and almost they seemed like the preachers, they would kind of um, allude to maybe speaking in a third tongue or being possessed by the Holy Ghost. I don't know if that's what you mean or not, but I'll, I'll, I'll meet my line there. Thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged, Red. Uh, <clears throat> I thought that was significant as well, just uh, yeah, him saying he was possessed. Uh, let's see, Rob in... Wisconsin, you had commentary. You should be with us. I'll look for other folks if I see any hands. Or did you have any commentary? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I missed the speech. Um, I stepped away from my laptop, but I was just uh, briefly looking over the text. And um, with the commentary that you shared, uh, re-examining the question, um, when he forgot what was uh, in the pamphlet, and he said he had to rely on tradition, and he spoke of, you know, the uh, old down south, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, that, along with him saying that he was blind, and the audience was, um, I guess, blind too, um, it almost, to me, sounds like a plea for uh, black people and white people to, um, I want to say, ignore the system so people won't be mistreated. Um, it almost sounds like a plea just um, for correct treatment. And then <clears throat> the other uh, piece that stood out was after the speech, um, the commentary um, between the character that was uh, smoking the pipe and Brother Jack. And um, just the language that was used, um, saying um, what uh, Red and Nevada shared about the uh, speech being scientific, and then uh, it was spoke about um, getting the people roused up and creating the energy, and then one having to organize that energy. It um, that conversation between the two white people sounded um, almost organized. And I got that impression <clears throat> when uh, I think Red touched on that as well, um, speaking that uh, the speech was an experiment. And uh, when he was leaving, when they were leaving, Brother Jack uh, told the invisible man um, that he did well and that, you know, the training was inevitable. And that's kind of what really made me think that um, maybe the two white people had conversed prior to um, talking to um, 
prior to the speech and prior to talking to the invisible man. And um, I'll uh, chime back in uh, later. And thanks for letting me share. Appreciate that, Rob in Wisconsin. Uh, I'll share some of the things that stood out uh, in chapter 16. I don't think the audience was blind uh, if, if folks read or have a passage, but I got the impression it was just the protagonist, invisible man who was blind, having some vision problems, not the audience. Uh, but uh, chapter 16, the latter portion of it anyway, um, the portion where exactly what Rob in Wisconsin just shared that portion where he says he couldn't remember the words from the text, uh, which is one of the, the brotherhood, one of their complaints later that they didn't uh, think he was being correct. They didn't think he was being accurate with what he was saying, but he says he couldn't remember the words and phrases uh, that he read earlier. Uh, so he had to fall back on tradition. And I think uh, it was read Nevada, uh, after the first audio segment, she was saying that the section where he said that he just kind of got lost uh, in in the moment and all the clapping and the spotlight and the music and in this big arena, and, you know, he just got swept up in the emotion of it all. Uh, and he's not thinking that happens consistently. Whites are great uh, at getting us to not be logical and just go off more of emotion, rhetoric metaphors that's why somebody uh, points that out regularly really be mindful of those metaphors that can be a big way of people talking and talking and talking and you're not really getting understanding logic truth uh with what's being said um but again i was even thinking with that because he said that he selected one of the political techniques that i'd heard so often at home and i'm thinking when he was back home he's talking to black people so I don't know. It seems like he's talking at least there are a sizable number of whites present for this speech. Uh, I don't know. Uh, or then again, the first speech that we hear him give down home was not to black people. It was to a group of white men at the uh, Battle Royal. So hmm, I guess he does have some experience back home speaking to whites. Continuing. uh Yeah, he says he, he couldn't see the audience. I think that's super important and immediately goes my mind right back to the uh, prize fighter uh, who was beaten blind uh, in the arena, not having an understanding. And I absolutely think that these, I mean, it's clear they, they have a little uh, rendezvous right in front of him before they go in for the meeting. Like, hey, I will leave the Negro over there and we'll, you know, talk it up amongst ourselves. They've clearly been uh, plotting. Uh, he is at a disadvantage throughout this process. So I'm sure they've had multiple uh, conversations. Um, the whole speech, it's lots of metaphors uh, throughout. I, I mean, I have no idea uh, what's being talked about here. Just lots of metaphors and something where I guess you can you can feel good. But I mean, if you understand system of racism, white supremacy, asking questions, what problem are we here to solve exactly? I don't recall that. <laughs> what should we be doing exactly to solve this problem? No clarity. And that's I could see why. Maybe this is an experiment. Maybe we want to have a nigra on staff that we can pull out to give these sort of nonsensical speeches that get people riled up every now and then. Maybe that's something that, you know, that can be useful uh, to an organization like this, to racist man, racist woman. Um, let's see. I think that the whole 
like after the speech is done and they're coming to critique him and say what a terrible job he's done whites white scientists when they come with all of this rhetoric about it's not uh scientific whites are the best at practicing white supremacy racism uh, under the guise of we are experts we are so scholarly we are so scientific uh, about what it is we do they are scientific white terrorists make no mistake about that but uh when it comes to other realms frequently they are feigning intelligence on matters and or just trying to act as though they are an expert in a subject matter when really all they're doing is practicing racism just berating a black person want to tell you how bad you are and you don't know anything when they could be the most clueless person well not clueless about racism but clueless about you know whatever they're critiquing you on uh in this situation i think it's a little bit of both because i do think the speech is nonsense but i also think that they're practicing racism that being said um when they're giving their critiques, uh, one of the whites and the brothers says, in my opinion, the speech was wild, hysterical, politically irresponsible and dangerous. Uh, and worse than that, it was incorrect. He pronounced incorrect as though the term described the most heinous crime imaginable. And I stared at him open mouth, feeling a vague guilt. Woo! Again, the brilliance of Ellison. I mean, why? And I think that is too sentence. Oh, wait a minute. All one sentence that uh, the last portion, all one sentence, just incredible, uh, descriptive, uh, powerful, concise writing. Wow. Um, and the indictment, him feeling like, yeah, I am just up here, you know, kind of spewing some nonsense. I forgot what was in the pamphlet and I'm just kind of kind of going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Uh, feeling a vague sense of guilt that, yeah, he, he, he kind of got me here. Um the Najinskis, I did not know what that was. Uh, I think that's always a uh, great practice. I'm bad at this myself at not every time. If there's a word that you don't know, and sometimes you can figure it out with context. Sometimes you can't. And even sometimes if you can figure it out with context, it's still good to uh, look it up just because sometimes there'll be different definitions or just a different additional information that can be helpful. So I didn't know uh, the portion that says uh, a most brilliant operation. Brother Jack went on smiling now a consummate example of skilled theoretical Najinsky's leaping ahead of history. But come down, brothers, come down or your land on your dialectics. I didn't know what Najinsky's, I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up. Uh, it's Vasilov Najinsky. Uh, this is a suspected racist ballet dancer, uh, ballet dancer and choreographer, cited as the greatest male dancer of the early 20th century, born in Kiev to Polish parents. Uh, he grew up in Russia. Uh, he grew up in Russia, considers himself to be Polish. Uh, I might consider this, or I do consider this more of the white identification. I think one of our listeners talked about before that uh, Ellison named uh, after Ralph Emerson, Ralph Ellison, very uh, immersed in white literature, uh, white culture, widespread, I would say. Uh, almost, I think many black people, uh, even right now, 2018, immerse ourselves in 
white culture, many non-white people, victims of white supremacy worldwide, immerse themselves uh, in white culture uh, with the hopes that this will show us as worthy of correct treatment, uh, as not being like the other niggers. I think there's been years, centuries of this sort of uh, response to white supremacy racism, but that's Nijinsky. Learn something. Uh, great verbiage, uh, Brother Jack, I think, uh, when he says, so at last it occurs to you, Brother Jack said, pulling down the corners of his mouth, training all is not lost. There's hope that our wild but effective speaker may be tamed. I thought this was a subtle way of him uh, kind of poking at them as being racist when this whole operation is white supremacy racism. But that language there, I thought, was br the brilliance uh, of Ellison and how he's constructing this character, uh, Brother Jack. Uh, let's see. Wow. I took so many notes this this last, the last, I guess, maybe four pages of chapter 16, four or five pages of 16, when he's kind of having this dialogue with himself after the speech is over and he's about to go to bed and he's just thinking about what's happened. He says, uh, as a brotherhood spokesman, I would represent not only my own group, but one that was much larger. The audience was mixed, their claims broader than race. I think so many victims of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade at the top of the list, we want so badly uh, for there to be some place yoga mat something where racism white supremacy does not operate and that is not the case sorry sorry for gusty sorry for us all uh but him thinking i think so many of us in our confusion thinking that oh yes maybe there is some place we can go maybe there's some organization maybe there are some whites that are not racist and maybe i found them this is great and this is so wonderful. I am beyond race. I don't have to talk about that anymore. And I don't even have to be a part of that. I could, hey, I'm, I don't even talk about that race stuff. You know, I'm beyond that. And, you know, I've got my white friends here in this organization. And we're doing these great, so many gusty at the top of the list uh, have been there when we are confused uh, about racism, white supremacy. And have man said things that are so similar when he says, if they could take a chance with me, then I'd do the very best that I could. How else could I save myself from disintegration? Disintegration is a word, right? I've heard it before, used it once or twice. Uh, if you remove the DIS integration, I thought that was very significant. Uh, if just having the word integration right there where this whole, I don't know, last two, three pages to me seems to be a lot about being closer to white people, being closer to racist man, racist woman in proximity. Uh, when I was uh, down south, I didn't get to see them that often unless, you know, they wanted me to have myself beaten blind uh, at the Battle Royal for their entertainment. Now maybe we can have dinner together or sit down and I don't have to be beaten senseless. We can sit down and talk. And, you know, maybe I can get me a cute white woman like that one that was in the boxing ring and, you know, we can do whatever. Uh, but that seems to be what a lot of people associate with quote-unquote integration. That's what a lot of us have been trained to think will happen with quote-unquote integration. Certainly that was happening a lot at the time uh, that this book was published, 1952. So that's uh, two years before Brown v. Board of Education integration. 
next. Wow, he has so many. I'm talking about the uh, protagonist. He has so many anti-black sentiments throughout the portion of the text that we've heard thus far and the way that he talks bad about other black people, the way that he talks about True Blood, the way that he talks about the black boys at the Battle Royal at the beginning, the way that he talks about uh, some of the black people uh, that he sees uh, going on the way to the Golden Day. It's throughout the text. He talks really, really bad about black people. This, I think, is the worst. He's thinking about, you know, why he said he feels more human at this point. I already told you my answer. He's closer to racist man, racist woman, physically in proximity. When he says, uh, and he's trying to understand why he said this more human, he says, for a moment, I thought of my grandfather and quickly dismissed him. What had an old slave to do with humanity? Wow. Like, and again, this is encouraged. The the, the brotherhood, uh, the good whites have told him, you know, you got to leave all those niggers behind, marrying your family and all of them. So they have kind of encouraged this, you know, whatever uh, to these folks. But I mean, wow, dead grandfather. <laughs> What does he know about humanity? Forget that old dead Negro. Um, a lot of notes on the last few portions here. Uh, his immersion in white literature continues to uh, shine through uh, where he says. Oh, and he's thinking perhaps it was something that Woodridge had said in the literature class back at college. I could see him vividly half drunk on words against someone intoxicated with language and full of contempt and exaltation pacing before the blackboard chalked with quotations from Joyce and Yates and Sean O'Casey, thin, nervous, neat pacing as though he'd walked a high wire of meaning upon which none of us would ever dare venture. Lots of immersion, white literature <laughs> right there. Uh, lots of these folks, if you go to uh, Barnes & Noble, Borders, wherever your local bookstore is, these would be the folks, the white faces that you would see prominently featured throughout the store. Uh, when he says, skipping down like a paragraph, he says, but no, it wasn't Woodridge. More human, did I mean that I had become less of what I was, less of a Negro? Or that I was less of being apart, less an exile from down home, the South, whites, I insert. But all this is negative to become less in order to come to become more question mark. I think today the way they would say it might be addition by subtraction or uh, some manipulation of that phrase. Uh, let's see. Here was a way skipping down just a paragraph. Here was a way that didn't lead through the back door, a way not limited by black and white, but a way which if one lived long enough and worked hard enough could lead to the highest possible rewards. Again, the, the dream that, racism white supremacy these some of these folks are not racist this is somewhere where racism does not exist and you can just work hard and anything is possible so many of us we want to believe that that is so he is still very naive we're at the halfway point um yeah that part i think where red said she thought it was maybe a positive portrayal of of darkness uh it's so much of this is is immersed in confusion, I think, uh, and and the the illusion. I guess I would have to pull in the phrase. I think it's so tacky, but the illusion of inclusion. Uh, I think I might have to pull. So much of this is is based on uh, an inaccurate understanding of racism, white supremacy. It's hard to it's hard to associate something positive with incorrect logic. That's why I have a little struggle with that, but. 
any other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have comment, question, anything that stood out from what we read today, uh, conclusion of chapter 16. Robin, Wisconsin. Um, just a um, couple more points. Um, thinking about the uh, speech again, where it was a lot of metaphors, nothing was being um, really accomplished, and getting the crowd roused up. It put me in the mind of um, what happened after um, a black person is killed uh, by an enforcement official, and um, uh, a uh, black person uh, comes out to address the media, and um, nothing gets done. Same thing happened. It kind of put me in the mind of that. <clears throat> and um, the conversation between the two white people, um, that really is sticking out to me. Um, just the language that was being used um, and the one white person praising him and then one white person criticizing him um, really makes me think like in that moment, how does the invisible man feel? How does he take that? And I think that that really highlights um, myself at the top of the list, like you say, Gus, um, how I feel you know, operating um, in this system of white supremacy, classified, classified as a, a black male. Um, it is uh, difficult, to say the least. Um, and the part where they talked about the invisible man being tamed, um, that really um, puts me in the mind of after, you know, more training, you'll, you know, get a promotion or, you know, you'll uh, be better. Um, and all the time, that is uh, not the case. Um, and it really um, conveys the message to me of the false sense of hope that um, Black people can get, you know, under the system. I think uh, the other Thursday on workplace racism, they talked about the uh, money disparity. And, um, you know, from my observation, black people um, really um, don't have the opportunity and don't really get to live the American dream. And uh, I'm in my line. Thank you. Oh, are you still? Oh, I. Uh, was that your, the end of your commentary, Rob? I heard. Uh, I, I, I was done, I guess. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great point about the segment on Thursday about uh, black people. That Although that segment was, oh, that segment was talking about New York, right? Right on time, uh, Rob in Wisconsin. That segment was talking about New York in 2018 and talking about the terrible living conditions uh, that black people uh, live in and have how they have a shorter uh, life expectancy and they have poor wages just like our protagonist in Invisible Man living with the roaches and no heat 
uh, in the cold and terrible job or can't find a job, period, uh, and then getting uh, terrible jobs once you do find uh, employment. But exact same conditions, uh, nearly 100 years apart. Again, this portion of the book is uh, like 1920. So um, other folks, uh, any commentary they want to make sure uh, they get in? Again, we will be starting one hour earlier for the next seven weeks. I uh, hope that does not destroy uh, anyone's schedule uh, or zest for participating uh, because it's such a just tremendous uh, book in my opinion. And uh, yeah, the archive will be there and all that, but one hour earlier just for teacher training for Gus T. Any other thoughts, questions, observations folks had? Everybody satisfied? Uh, caller at nine seven four nine nine seven four nine. Did you have uh, questions, comments you wanted to share? Oh, I just got on the call, so um, I read I read uh, chapter sixteen and seventeen. So I don't know if, if you guys. Uh, We're at the end of sixteen. Oh, okay, okay. So you, um, so you guys already talked about the speech that he did and all of that, right? Yes, that's what we're talking about now. If you have uh, questions or thoughts uh, on that, uh, I had uh, some of the questions that I asked. Um, if you have any thoughts on the protagonist saying that he sees this photograph of a black boxer who was beaten blind, and then died, uh, like, you know, broken and blind uh, as an old person. He remembers uh, his, I think it was his father telling him about this situation, but he sees the photo of this and it's at the arena where he's giving his speech. What do people uh, think about that? Uh, what is what was the significance or relevance of that, especially since he's uh, blind when, uh, or not blind, but he, he can't see the audience while he's giving the speech and even going all the way back to the beginning of the book, the battle Royal, he is boxing blind. Uh, that was question one. And, uh, I had, I feel like I asked several questions. That was one question. Uh, Oh, I have some thoughts on that. Yes, sir. Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Well, I'm trying to think of some of the other questions so you can go ahead and answer that one. Um, uh, I don't know if this uh, if if anybody has shared this already, so uh, forgive me if I'm you know repeating. Um, but yeah, my thoughts on that whole um, thing with the blindness. Um, I think that um, I think that um, I think that the narrator has um, has a good point about that because. If you look from the beginning, um, I think he's using the word blind in terms of, uh, for example, like when, um, uh, what's his name? The, the guy, the, the school principal, not the principal, the, uh, the uh, school director or president or whatever. Dr. Bledsoe? He, yeah, 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 Bledsoe. Um, then he like, uh, well, when he finally figured out um, um, what was in the letters 
um, he saw that he was betrayed by uh, Dr. Bledsoe, and I feel that when he uses the metaphor blindness, it seems to me that Dr. Bledsoe was um, had a I don't know he had a blind uh, I want to say a blind uh, allegiance to uh, white supremacy, and so and and you could see that through several of the other characters in the uh, in the book and um i don't know i i need to get my thoughts together um probably not um um articulating it correctly so i'll i'll mute my line for now that is allowed i remember the other or at least one of the other questions if you want to ponder on that too have more to even think on uh, one of the other questions I asked was, uh, what's the significance of the protagonist having to lug uh, the I'm what I'm calling the jolly nigger bank because I saw Spike Lee's bamboozled uh, him having to lug that item uh, around? Why or what is the relevance of that since uh, he, he breaks it uh, the day he leaves uh, Miss Mary's uh, rooming house and he tries to throw it in the trash and. Uh, what we think is a non-white female, she comes out and demands that he get it out of her trash or she's going to call the police on him. He gets it out, throws it on the ground, and then another, think black male, uh, retracts it and makes him take it back and then accuses him of being a, a scoundrel uh, on top of it. Uh, what's the significance? And and uh, I uh, related that to um, there are many times in the book, and there are going to be more of these instances coming, where the main character sees black people like Mary with the Jolly Nigger Bank. That's not what it's called in the book. Uh, she's got that uh, when he sees, uh, it's an earlier character in the book. I already mentioned it. I'm having to go back and remember things I talked about already. Uh, when he sees, um, is that the Dr. Bledsoe? Dr. Bledsoe has, uh, I think it's a slave iron uh, in his office on his desk. That's one. Uh, and it's somebody, there's another character as well that uh, is a black person and they have, oh, it's the, uh, during the eviction, uh, they have uh, the emancipation note uh, after slavery has ended and they have the little bones that uh, seem like there's some sort of uh, ornament or instrument that uh, someone who performs in a minstrel show might have. And he looks at them, he mentions them several times. He even, he he asks that question specifically of this elderly couple, uh, you know, was one of them or were they in some sort of minstrel show? And he's wondering, he sees this repeatedly in the book, uh, black people having these items that he thinks they shouldn't have, or it's, you know, certainly strange why they would have these items. What's the significance? And then he ends up having to lug even some of these items himself as he's progressing through the book. What's that significant? Is that relevant at all? That was one of the other questions that I asked. If you want to ponder uh, as we... Pro oh, another question. I did ask quite a few questions. That's why I was having troubles because I feel like I asked quite a few. Uh, the other question I asked, and this was just one to ponder on. Uh, I should have maybe asked this from the very beginning, but at minimum, we'll think about it to the end. This book is not The Invisible Man. This book is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. What is the significance of, uh, they call it a definite article? No definite no definite article in the title. It's Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Why is that significant, if it is at all? That was another question, if you want to 
ponder on after you uh, have your thoughts together. Uh, any other folks uh, have questions, thoughts they want to share? Gus's yoga schedule probably disrupted uh, everyone's uh, thinking uh, for the book session today, just being an hour. That hour is significant. I just uh, was talking to Emmy uh, and mentioned it on the broadcast. I played the audio segment, just changing uh, the time. An hour can have a huge impact uh, on people's functioning. Uh, any other thoughts? Robin, Wisconsin, did you have something you wanted to share? Uh, yes, sir. Um, just uh, an answer to your last question. Um, me, it sounds like Ralph Ellison is presenting himself in the third person and also uh, representing uh, the black males in, within the United States and uh, globally uh, under the system of white supremacy. Thank you. Hmm. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, evidence in some of the biographies and research on Ellison's life that many of the things that happened in this book uh overlay uh, or parallel uh, some of Ellison's experiences, him going to school in the South and then going to New York to try to get a job to pay for college. There's lots of overlap uh, in some of the things that happened to the main character and things that happened to Ellison in his life. So absolutely. And definitely, I think a lot of black people, uh, period, particularly I would think black males, since the main character is a black male, but I think a lot of black people, period, can relate to... Uh, Invisible Man, the character in the book. Any other comments, questions? Mary Hurt. Red in Nevada. Um, there was another um, passage that I thought in Chapter 16 kind of um, was a positive um, reference to dark. It was when it was after the speech and. He had gotten back to his apartment, and the sentence says, I have been transformed and now lying restlessly in my bed in the dark. I felt a kind of affection for the blurred audience whose faces I had never seen clearly. And, like, he was lying in the dark, dark being referenced. And then also I, I kind of took it as maybe the audience um, being um, either a mixed crowd or maybe even more um, black than white, just how the description is. And so I thought that maybe that might have been another um, call out where he was referencing um, dark and or black people almost in a, somewhat of an affectionate way. And I'll meet my line. Thank you. Interesting. Interesting. I think uh, as he stays in New York and we get to meet more black people, uh, I think there will be more positive references to black people and uh blackness in general as uh yeah we yeah we're about halfway through the but there are lots of black people we've not even like really important black characters that we've not even yeah we haven't even met so more of that to come uh i guess stay alert because i think there'll be more positive references to blackness as we proceed and the color black any other questions thoughts folks satisfied or have anything else they want to share Anything didn't make sense? Again, if you do have a question, if, you know, something I say doesn't make sense or you do have a additional thoughts, uh, I'm pretty sure I have asked Professor Hill before, the lovely Professor Hill, black female, 
Uh, I played her audio at the beginning of the program. I'm pretty sure if you had a thought or question, she would be willing to provide an answer. I've asked her questions before about this book and even after she was a guest on the program and she responded promptly. And Dr. Kevorkian, I have already taken him up to ask his thoughts <clears throat> when we didn't understand something or wanted additional input uh, on a thought or question. And he also replied promptly. So we have university professors at our disposal to provide extra thoughts or insight if folks would like uh, additional clarity or additional info on uh, Ralph Ellison's work. Definitely one that I would encourage investigating. So rich, so many layers. Uh, everybody good? Anything else? Gus, I had one other thing. I'm, I know that we kind of talked about um, the term dope when he was working at um, Amer was it Liberty Paints or American Liberty Paints, and I didn't know if maybe that was something that um, I can't remember if you said you were going to ask um, Dr. Kevorkian about that or if that's, that's something that you've already asked him about, but I know that was a question that I had. Now mute my line. Thank you. Indeed, uh, I did ask Dr. Kevorkian, and that is one that he did provide uh, a prompt response on. Uh, I uh, think, hope, I hope my memory isn't that bad. Uh, I've read it on the broadcast, but I can read it again uh, to make sure that it is on the record. Uh, so Dr. Kevorkian, author of Color Monitors, The Black Face of Technology in America. He's been a guest on the program uh, more times than I can count, going all the way back to 2009 when we uh, first got started. Uh, he was on uh, even this year uh, since the god-awful flood. Um, pulling up his email. Okay, Invisible Man. So the question, I'll read that for folks just so that everybody has full context and then I'll read Dr. Kevorkian's reply. Email is loading slowly, but hopefully it'll pop up here in a second or two. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, tune in. We'll catch up on what transpired last seven days on the plantation. Uh, we'll be good to catch up counter racist suggestions, thoughts, views. Uh, <clears throat> wow, that is wacky. I've never had my mail take that long to open. I'm going to just go to a different browser and see if that uh, courses uh technical college and uh enrolled in a literature course and we're studying uh the elements of short fiction and uh, the elements of a novel and i just learned what the word protagonist means just a couple of days ago so it was very interesting uh, to hear that word in the program thank you oh what does oh, it mean let's uh, hear what does it mean protagonist <laughs> the main character uh, Oh, okay. We've been using it correctly, yes? <laughs> and um, reading is more important than watching television. Amen. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. The grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. All right. Woo! Uh, yes. Yes. It only took five hours. So, uh, question... The question was... The word... Uh, whoop, 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 whoop. The question was... What is the significance of the black wick liquid that's added to the uh, optic white paint being called dope? So that was Liberty Paints. I think that was like two, three weeks back. We read that. Dr. Kevorkian's reply. The word dope can have many different meanings. 
and these meanings were all current at Ellison's time. But one thing that they tend to have in common is that dope is some kind of unspecified additive, one that is necessary for a particular purpose, but that is often not explicitly authorized or even legal. In contemporary sports, people speak of doping scandals in this way, though it looks like the performance-enhancing idea first applied to animals and machines. Hmm. Here are some of those related meanings from Oxford English Dictionary. A preparation, mixture, or drug which is not specifically named, see quotations, in stuff, slang, originally uh, first used 1872. Next, a substance added to petrol or other fuel, etc. to increase its efficiency, an additive. Next, a medical preparation administered to a racehorse for the purpose of of affecting its performance. That's 1901 first or uh, one of the earliest uses. I think that these meanings all fit with the idea that the whiteness of the pink depends upon the secret ingredient of the black liquid, just as whiteness and white supremacy have an unacknowledged dependency on non-white people. Dope can, of course, also be a drug or narcotic, the slang term for opium, one that could blind people to the truth. B, opium, especially the thick, treacle-like preparation used in opium smoking, hence applied to stupefying drugs and narcotics in general or to alco alcoholic drink. Used this way since 1986. Figuratively, dope can be used to describe both a secret truth and the deceptions that hide that truth. Information, especially on a particular subject or a kind not widely disseminated or easily obtained, a statement of facts or essential details, also information, a statement, etc., designed to gloss over or disguise facts, flattering or misleading talk, first used this way in 1901. Lucius Brockway is the one who knows the straight dope about the white liberty paint that white freedom had been built upon black enslavement. The white paint, like the white paint you mentioned in Black Mirror, is used to cover the truth of this necessary black presence. In this sense, both the white paint and the black additive are dope in these opposite related senses of the hidden truth and the thing that hides it. That was his response on the question of dope. Uh, and to add, uh, Dr. Kevorkian, uh, PhD in English, he can get kind of scientific and experty. Uh, does have a PhD in English. That's what he uh, teaches at the University of uh, Texas Austin, and he is an admitted white supremacist. But that was his commentary. Did that mean anything to you? Were you able to to process or make any sense of that uh, read in Nevada? Oh yes, thank you. Especially when he said that um, kind of bringing up the reference between, because I was thinking like um, like the drug reference and how he was saying where it's something that's used but kind of illicit. Um, but like you said, it was definitely very robust, and I'll have to um, go back through the archives and listen to it uh, some more. But I, that was, that's what I was kind of thinking of it as well. Um, but, yes, thank, thank you so much for um, reading it. Now I'll mute my line. Indeed. Indeed. English, but words are super important. Uh, any anything else folks want to get in? We'll assume folks are satisfied again. Same time, 
uh, probably for the rest of this book, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Hopefully folks will adjust and it will not disrupt uh, one of, uh, I think, best books uh, that we could be reading, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. If you have thoughts, questions, gripes about the time change, uh, or just thoughts on the book in general, untiljustice at gmail.com. Much obliged for folks who participated. We'll be here same time next week. And again, we'll be here tomorrow, normal normal time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, again, summertime, solstice was yesterday. I uh, hope folks are enjoying the warm weather, getting your rays in. Still want to be codified. In my view, it would still be the best policy. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Yes, get out, frolic, have fun, do it up. Race soldiers do not take vacations just because the weather is nice. We should all be very familiar with that. If anything, sometimes it seems they intensify their terrorism and abuse of black people. The grandcestor, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, would certainly want us to be sober, taking excellent care of our brain computer so that we can think clearly, make phenomenal decisions to solve this problem promptly. In addition to being sober, if you're going to be in a vehicle, Buckle up, driver or passenger. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.